A good Monday to you on this October 4th. This episode of Real Talk is presented by our title sponsors per the Globe and Mail, one of Canada's fastest growing companies. That's right. It's Bitcoin. Well, proudly headquartered out of our home city of Edmonton, Alberta, with Bitcoin ATMs across the country. We don't show up here every day and encourage you to sell everything you own and buy Bitcoin. Although my pal Jeff thinks that's exactly what you should do. That's not the official position of the show. The official position of the show is that if you have questions about crypto, about why Bitcoin well is the quickest and safest way to buy and sell Bitcoin, you're into Ethereum as well. They can answer your questions about the blockchain and Bitcoin wallets and everything else. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab right at the top at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Dr. Wing Lee of uh, Support Our Students is coming up in about 10 minutes. I'm looking forward to that. Well, am I? Uh, if I choose my words carefully, no offense uh, to Wing Lee. It's, it's not that I'm not looking forward to welcoming her back to the show, but I'm not sure how excited I am or how much I'm looking forward to talking about mass outbreaks of COVID-19 in schools. Uh, this is the reality right now. And I know that a lot of you have this front of mind. And so we're going to get their perspective. Uh, Support Our Students has been working with others to to track uh, outbreaks seen in our home province of Alberta right now. And the numbers are off the charts. Uh, pretty concerning stuff. And we'll get into what they think the solution might be. I know for a lot of parents, uh, you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place right now because you're trying to make decisions. Obviously, you're going to make decisions that are best for your family, that are best for your beloved, uh, your offspring, and of course, everybody that your kids are going to come into contact with, including maybe your parents, right? Grandma and grandpa, maybe people that are in vulnerable health scenarios. You know that kids need socializing. You know that you want them to have as much normalcy as possible, but nothing's really normal right now. And the numbers are showing that these unvaccinated, I mean, these gems, our next generation, our kids that can't be vaccinated quite yet. I know everybody's paying attention to the news that shows that maybe in the next number of weeks or maybe the next number of months that kids maybe 5 to 11 might be able to get vaccinated. But in the meantime, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do if, if there's an outbreak at your kid's school? especially if the school shuts down and then reopens, but you're not sure you're quite comfortable yet. You know, what about kids sports? What about what about kids opportunities like, you know, band class or things like that that are going on and they're asking the parents to provide proof of vaccination, but you know that all the kids in the room aren't. You know, I'm doing really is just sharing my own personal situation right now. I'm walking miles in these shoes along with so many of you. We're curious for your take on on how your family's managing or how you're making your decisions. You can send us an email anytime. You can tap into our hashtag on Twitter, powered by Park Power at Real Talk RJ. We'd love to know how you're. Are you finding peace amidst these challenging circumstances? A lot of stuff going on over the weekend. We're going to take a look in just a second. Sarah Hoyles, the producer of this show, following that big oil spill in California. Another gut wrencher. Huge weekend for sports. The the Toronto Blue Jays, an unbelievable season for this this kind of this young. I mean, everybody's looking to next year already. The Jays are looking good. They've got a couple of contracts they're going to have to sign between now and next year. But over the weekend, it comes down to this. They want to qualify for the postseason. They've got to win all three games over the weekend. They do that. And then they need those two behemoths 
in the AL East, they need one of them to lose. They need either the Yankees or the Red Sox to lose. The Yankees don't lose. Freaking Yankees, right? And then the Red Sox, down 5-1 in the six, they come back to win. A tough one for the Jays. I love that you uh, you built it out, though, that you were like, yeah, Jays, but they lost. But they lost. But they're out. But I mean, they won, but they still lost. They won, but they still lost. <laughs> it comes down to, as a buddy of mine said, I was talking about it yesterday. He says an entire season comes down to one inning, and all the Jays could do is watch as the Bo Sox are down 5-1 in the sixth. Then they come back. They rally to win. Unbelievable. So we look to next year for the Jays. And then the return. Capital T, capital R, the return. The greatest of all time. Quarterback Tom Brady back in Boston for his first time since, of course, going to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And you know that the Patriots wanted to beat Brady. Not only did he come in and win, but he also sets the all-time, breaks the all-time pass yards record breaks it uh takes it from drew Brees, who was there on the broadcast crew does it in boston which was a pretty big moment i was talking to a couple of friends on that over the weekend and i said so where does this stack up do you think And they said well first of all brady's you know this game with regards to brady's all-time most meaningful or greatest games they said well you know everybody's talking about how he's preparing for his return to boston like it's a super bowl and then my one pal chimes in and says, put it this way. Good Morning America did their Friday show from Boston. That's how big of a deal it is. That was the marker on how big of a deal it was. It was that Good Morning America did their Friday show from Boston to talk about it. Eh, Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Hey, love him or hate him. Seven Super Bowls. I wonder seven Super Bowls and still looking as good as ever at 44 years old, which gives me hope <laughs> as a broken down 44 year old <laughs> busted ass 44 year old. I, we went straight. I went straight from watching. I was able to watch the first half of the game last night and then we had men's league basketball. So you were feeling and like- I went and I went and I saw Tom Brady looking. Pre- I mean, it wasn't like the first half wasn't that great. If you watch. I know this people are going to write in and say this is what they used to do on my radio show. When did this become a sports podcast? This isn't a sports podcast. I don't always want to lead off with the oil spills, yeah. you know, uh, but, but, you know, there's kind of like, you know, field goal here, missed field goal there in the first half. Not that great. And then I, and then I went to men's league. And don't worry, we all checked in with our vaccine passports and everything and all that jazz masks up into the court. Although that stuff always gets me too, right? We all wear our masks right up till we get onto the court. and We all take our masks off and start heavy breathing. And our cardiovascular <laughs> levels are like as atrocious. as You'd think we maybe had COVID the way that we're breathing. Uh, is that too soon? And uh, and I'm sitting there thinking like Brady at 44 still. Right. It's like, you know, I'm trying to think who it is. You know, it's like Yager, Yermer Yager still playing in Kladno and Czech and he's like 49 or Gordy Howe playing mm. till he's 50 or. I just wonder how full the football was that Tom Brady was playing with. You're not past that. The, the, the inflate gate or deflate gate, I guess you might call it <laughs> deflate gate. They might say that if you're not cheating, you're not trying to win, you know. These are the lessons you got to teach the kids, right? How to play within the gray area of the rules. That's terrible. I think a lot of people probably started to admire Tom Brady a little bit more when they found out about this. This is years ago. Can we get past that? No, I cannot. I'm not even a big Brady guy. I feel like cheering for Tom Brady is like cheering for the Yankees. It's like cheering for it's like cheering for the teams that it was like cheering for the Chicago Bulls back in the 1990s. Like, 
you, you, you know, it's too easy. Or the Brooklyn Nets now in the NBA who basically have stacked their whole roster, just paying and paying and paying. I'm a little out of my depth on this one, but, okay. but I'd have to say the Lakers are doing that too, but just oh, with, yeah. with older players, yeah. right? Yeah. So they've got like AD and Russell Westbrook and LeBron. Is, is this going to be the NBA final? Is that going to be it? I hope not. I want it. Like, I'm all about the underdog, always the underdog. So I want the teams that are just like muscling it out yeah. on grit not paychecks. Okay, so we've had some fun. We, we've got positivity here in the studio. Now let's take the punch in the gut, Hoyles. What's going on in, in California? This is this is the type of story that anybody that's, uh, uh, you know, you don't have to be an environmental. Although I always think it's like when people say like a feminist. It's like if you're, if you're not a feminist, you're kind of a prick, right? It's like, what are you, a feminist? Well, yeah, I believe like women and men should be treated equally and there should be equal opportunity. Same sort of thing with environmentalist. Who's not? You drink the water, you breathe the air. Uh, so for anybody living on planet Earth, but I was going to say most especially people working in the energy industry, these mm. are the types of nightmare headlines you hope to never see. Uh, what's going on in SoCal right now? Uh, 500,000 liters of oil, heavy crude oil, have spilled into the Pacific Ocean just off the coast of Orange County. So it's looking like Huntington Beach, a really popular beach down in California, and a whole stretch uh, of beach are closed until at least January. They're saying that it's created a 13-square-mile slick dead birds, dead fish, dead dolphins. It's atrocious. Yeah. Okay. So this is, the, they think that this is a pipeline and I was reading up on it a little bit, a pipeline that was constructed in like 1980s. They say it's uh, inspected every year. Uh, they don't quite know what happened here. They don't actually quite even know where it happened. That's right. They just had to turn off the whole valve. They had yeah. to be like, shut it down. Try to limit it. Yeah. But it's the damage. The damage is done. It's out there. I you know, like pipelines. It's not if they leak, it's when. Yeah. And, and people now will, will make the argument for, you know, those people, these can be kind of, it's hard to have conversations like that. I want this show to be like, as much as some people might be surprised, I would say that this show, if you have to take a position, the show is pro pipeline uh, in the sense that at least the host of this show is pro pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm being honest, <laughs> so I keep the editorial producer from getting up and walking out with two hours, you know, an hour and a half still to go in the show on Monday. Uh, but I'm a pro I'm leaving. I'm I, out yeah, of here. I'm out of here. Uh, but no, I am. I am pro pipeline with proper considerations. And I think all things considered, and I don't need to go on a big rant right now, um, but with proper uh, consultation in Canada, we're talking right now about proper consultation with with indigenous stakeholders, uh, with proper environment environmental controls and environmental reviews. I think that it's safe to say that there is a global reliance on fossil fuels now anyway. And realistically, Canada has an economic reliance on fossil fuels as well. And the safest way for now to transport these, uh, the way that makes the most sense, all things considered, is pipelines. However, there are also, this is the kind of warts and all thing, uh, where a lot of times pipelines do rupture. Uh, there's amazing technology being developed and controls, digital controls where where uh, breaches and pipelines are detected quickly. And these types of things maybe aren't prevented, but at least the damages or, or mass damages are mitigated. But this is a really tough one to see. And there have been obviously disastrous pipeline breaches throughout history. We know that. 
and also disastrous scenarios where oil is being transported by rail and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, ultimately, all things considered, I just picked up the new National Geographic magazine. Have any of you seen it? Basically, I can't remember what it says on the front. Something like the future is now or something like this. And they're talking about the next, you know, the next gen of transportation technology and where it's going and EVs, electric vehicles and solar powered this and battery powered that and people can get into it and say well you drive an ev in alberta and that's going to be coal powered electricity no i think we're all trying to do our best um and a story like this is one that i think is a really good reminder that we've still got a ways to go uh, what matters now most to the tens of millions of people living in southern california is that like you said there's a 20 square kilometer oil slick right now and not that it matters where it is because i think it matters anywhere uh, but the fact that it is, like you said, by Huntington Beach and other really popular beaches, it's going to serve as a really stark reminder. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that I immediately feel you know who I feel for the most is like the dolphins and the birds and the fish. Uh, secondly, the humans, although we're, we're kind of to blame. Um, but I also can't imagine this morning being, uh, you know, in the position of, of, you know, the oil company. That, that right now is is going to have literally months and months of damage control to do. Uh, and, and, and you don't know, this is Amplify Energy, by the way. It's based out of Houston, Texas. That's the one that owns the pipeline. Um, you know, CEO Martin Wilshire said over the weekend, quote, our employees live and work in these communities. And we're all deeply impacted, concerned about the impact on not just the environment, but the fish and wildlife as well. We'll do everything in our power to ensure this is recovered as quickly as possible. We won't be done until this is concluded. Uh, and people might say, well, obviously. But you imagine if you are one of those employees that works for Amplify Energy living in Southern California, you're going, oh, shit. You know, it's like if you work for BP back when that gusher was going for like weeks at a time and people could look at the live cam or if you worked for Exxon, you know, back in the day, the Exxon Valdez, do I even need to write? I'm just making this worse and worse on the spirit. We had everyone was in such a good mood this morning. Sam, you're still smiling. I appreciate that. We're talking about environmental destruction, but but at least but at least you've still got a smile on your face. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the chit chat. I'm enjoying the back and forth. This here. is just yeah. small talk. <laughs> just small wait talk about pipeline. Just yeah, wait till no. we get into the serious stuff. Oh. I am so excited for 30 minutes from now. Uh, th th I've I've told people there were kind of three titans in my life as a young man uh, right around 11 years old is when i started thinking about a career in journalism uh, in particular i always wanted to be a television news anchor and there were three uh really that that had a sort of a formative influence uh, with honorable mention to a fourth but peter mansbridge peter jennings and charles adler were huge in my life and uh, peter mansbridge is going to be joining us in 30 minutes now uh, to talk about his new book off the record be curious to know if anybody would get the trivia question. I've, I've mentioned the fourth before, the honorable mention fourth. Nolton Nash. Good guess, but not Nolton Nash. As a matter of fact, he was a talk radio personality in Alberta for about 25 years. Oh, I was going to guess the weather guy from ITV. Remember oh, Bill Matheson? Not Bill Matheson. Yeah, so from great. ITV back in the day. Dave Rutherford. Uh, Dave and I wouldn't see eye to eye on much, but I listened to hundreds of hours of his show um, 
which uh, which made it even more hurtful when he made a very rude gesture to me on election night in 2019 when I was sitting on the global desk. Uh, but that doesn't matter. That's behind us now. But yeah, those the three Mansbridge, Jennings and Adler were were huge to me. And so I'm very much looking forward to talking to, you know, Peter in 30 minutes. That's gonna be great. Dr. Raj Sherman will join us in about an hour and 15 and about 75 minutes from now. He's an ER doc. Of course, he was a politician in Alberta for a number of years. So he'll have, I'm sure, a very interesting perspective on what's going on right now with COVID-19. You know, this is a national talk show that we do. The fact of the matter is Alberta is on fire. And so we're talking a lot about our home province right now. And Dr. Sherman will have a great perspective on that. Uh, Dr. Wing Lee, in just a moment on schools. First, we want to remind you that the team at Friesen Brothers knows that we're transitioning into that Thanksgiving season. And they want to remind you that on their website, Friesen.com, that's F-R-E-S-O-N, Friesen.com. You can learn more about their pickup Thanksgiving ham dinner. It's none of the work. It's all of the praise. You get to customize the meal. It's absolutely fantastic. I can tell you based on experience, we've had one before. They've got their in-house Red Seal chefs. This isn't some lousy, you know, you go to some bunk-ass grocery store and they throw together a few things, stale buns and a couple, you know, bag of chips and, a, you know, a mixed-together bagged salad. Uh-uh. Friesen Brothers, I mean, if you want, you don't even have to, you don't even have to tell your family what you've done. Hey, why not keep that between, you know, yourself and Friesen Brothers? You can place your order today for pickup at Friesen.com. Also, a big shout out to our friends at Park Power. I mentioned, you know, they're the ones that are powering our hashtag on Twitter, on Instagram, Real Talk RJ. Give them a follow on Instagram as well. They've got a great social media presence celebrating local businesses. If you use the promo code right now, 2021-RealTalk at parkpower.ca, you know how it goes by now. You get 70 bucks off your first bill. I'm going to say that there are a good number of you that know right now, if I walked up to you on the street, and I said, what's the promo code for Park Power? You'd say 2021-RealTalk. And I'd say, have you switched over? And you'd go, yeah, I've been meaning to. Why haven't you done it? You can compare rates. Plus, they support us. You can support them, your friendly local utilities provider today at parkpower.ca. Well, for a lot of families, today's going to be a tough day, right? Either your, your kid's school's open, but you've heard of COVID cases in the school, or maybe your kid's school's closed, they've moved back online, and, and you're not really sure where to turn. Your life is turned upside down. Hey, what about the families who've had kids in hospital over the past number of days? We've received some unconfirmed reports that a number of kids have been receiving care in children's hospitals across the province of Alberta, keeping an eye on it are the good folks that support our students, Alberta. You can find more about them at supportourstudents.ca. Dr. Wing Lee is communications director there with the Alberta-based Public Education Advocacy Group joining us live this morning. Welcome back to the show. It's good to have you here. I wish we, we need to start bringing you on the show to talk about fun and lighthearted stuff. But of course, sometimes we got to go right to the heavy stuff. And you guys have been doing it at least now for a year and a half on the COVID file. Yeah, so this year we didn't actually think we could because of the lack of contact tracing, but the demand by families reaching out to us to ask us to do it was overwhelming. And so, you know, we we recruited a few more volunteers that have helped us with the dashboards, and it really is a community effort at this point. Okay, can you, I'm going to put this up on the screen so the people that are watching along with us uh, can check it out online. 
obviously people listening to the podcast can just check out your website, supportourstudents.ca. But but tell us about this and tell us what we're going to see. So what you'll see is if you go right to the Outbreaks page is a list uh, of daily submissions that we receive. So it'll be, you know, a breakdown of what we know, if it's one case or several cases from a certain school, it'll have the town or the city listed because there are schools with multiple names in this province or duplicate names. And then there's a map view that you can go to to see more of a spatial uh, distribution of outbreaks and cases that is being maintained by uh, Karen Parker. Uh, you can find her at J. Kay Parker on Twitter. She's a volunteer that reached out to us and has, you know, awesome uh, data skills. Um, the other thing you can do is toggle to the timeline view. And that is Amy Watanabe, who is helping us with sort of the spread out of what's happening over time since the beginning of the school year. So you've got, you've got sort of all hands on deck and I think all of us benefit from the, the, the abilities and the commitment of these people to, to contribute what they can to mine this data and to organize it. I mean, how much of a challenge is that? And, and how do you think that that challenge could be alleviated? I mean, ideally, what would the ministry of education or the government of Alberta be doing right now? Ideally, they can reinstate contact tracing in schools and also publicly report as they did last year. Uh, They maintain an outbreak map of schools that was on the government website. And we still had a tracker for individual cases, but we've sort of gone straight to outbreaks this year of the 10% absentee due to illness. And it seems like it's escalating this year and they have the tools, you know, the government has Uh, the infrastructure and the centralized info to do this. This is their job. You know, this is public data that belongs to the public and it's now being downloaded to, you know, like good intention volunteers that want to help, but, you know, we're doing this on our, on our free time and we're dealing with the pandemic in our own lives. And, but we do it because we know it's important and we're trying to make the case that people need to know and they deserve to know if their children are exposed or potentially exposed in schools. Yeah, that's it's very that's, basic. It's it's safe to say, I think that there's been a bit of a theme uh, this pandemic. Well intentioned and skilled volunteers stepping up to fill in the blanks where the government's falling short. I think of media availability that, that a bunch of ER and ICU docs were doing on an on an upstart grassroots YouTube channel a while ago. The Protect Our Province uh, teams. So contact tracing in schools you talk about an outbreak where 10 percent of a student population is absent due to illness is that how you that's how you define it that's how they define it alberta health has moved that threshold remember last year at this time an outbreak was two cases in a school that they deemed were linked so 10 percent of a school that has 400 students homesick potentially that is a larger number of students that have the illness and we don't know we just know they're home absent so we try to be very careful and their definition is we don't want to know until the school tells us 10 percent of their population is home at one time and they seem to have reached though that threshold within the first month 
Why do you think government would be withholding this information? What do you think would be stopping the government? What's your theory on what would stop the government from implementing contact tracing and doing absolutely everything humanly possible to have parents and caregivers equipped with the most fulsome information possible? I think it really comes down to what we saw this summer is they want to treat COVID like a common cold. They really wanted to go away. I think they were, you know, in some sort of illusion that we can enter a state where COVID is normalized and then the healthcare system collapsed and we were in a public state of emergency after this summer. But they've always downplayed the impact of COVID in schools because they're relying on old data. You know, back in March 2020, when schools were shut down, they're saying now, you know, schools aren't a big deal, business as usual, status quo, pre-pandemic normal, and they're not pivoting based on what's happening. And that's the evidence we're trying to bring to the table is we have tools to mitigate this. We're not saying to be you know, reinvent the wheel here. We can have the basic monitoring so that you can maintain in-person learning and all the great benefits that come from students being able to stay in school during a crisis. So what are parents telling you? I mean, with regards to how, I mean, people are being put in a position, I think, to make almost impossible decisions, right? On one hand, they feel like their kids need to be in school. I know that now, really, we're kind of, it feels like into the second year of this, uh, people have, you know, people will have had their second Thanksgiving compromise. They'll have kids will have had their second Halloween compromised, a second Christmas holiday compromised. People had their second birthdays compromised. I'm talking about the kids here for the most part, but also you feel for adults, you feel for everybody. Parents know that, I mean, this isn't, I'm not saying this is the biggest thing in the world, but our little guy had hockey over the weekend. I know a lot of parents are saying, gosh, it's going to be interesting to see you know, a number of years from now, what what this interruption is going to mean for the sporting development, or we might talk about the musical development, the artistic development, all these kids that have had virtually two years of activities interrupted. And so parents obviously are eager to get their kids back into these opportunities as soon as they can. But at the same time, they're not going to endanger the the young person's well-being. They're not going to endanger the family's well-being. What are people telling you about how they're making these decisions? We get a lot of messages of parents expressing exactly those concerns, Ryan. They are trying to have someone listen to them. And, you know, they feel alone because I think the government messaging has been such such downplaying of the safety risk uh, of COVID running rampant in their communities that they're being told something versus what they're actually experiencing, right? Like getting COVID notices from schools day after day is not normal. And yet, like you say, we know that children need uh, consistency and they need structure and they need to go back into these social environments, physical environments where they are developing in sort of what we're trying to insulate as safety zones. And we hear from parents like frustration of not having information available to them to make these decisions, whether they need to pivot from work or, you know, carve out their life for a period of time to shelter, 
uh, from certain risks in their community. They don't know that. We just don't have those tools. And it's actually causing more anxiety. And psychologically, that's unnecessary because we can know if the government was offering the information and data so we can assess and rationalize. And what you see is parents being thrown into an impossible situation. And so they try to just focus on their bubble, right? Like focus on what they control, can control day to day, which is all of us, I think, at this point. But remember, too, some parents did online last year for the whole year because they were trying to be safe. Little would they know that it'd be worse coming back 2021, uh, September. And so the other part of it is exhaustion. Um, Having young kids at home, right, and being more constrained in what you can do with them because you want to keep them safe. You don't want them to be at risk. Um, It's your job to try to protect them. But a lot of the pandemic is out of our personal control. And so we hear lots of that frustration and just being in a state of, um, you know, uncertainty, but being prolonged in this state is is really detrimental, right, for mental health in the long run. I, we, I mean, we think of, you know, everybody sees the world through their own lens. And, you know, we pulled our little guy out of school. And uh, I don't have any problem telling anybody that. And uh, and it meant some adjustments for our family. I'm lucky to have an amazing partner who kind of stepped up, to be quite honest, and shoulder the, the, the biggest part of that burden. I think of, I, I know in so many family situations where there's that's not an option, Include I think of single parent families, I don't even know. I mean, I already had a ton of respect for single parents. I don't even know how single parents adjust to this. And I know that family dynamics are different in every circumstance. I can't even imagine uh, the stress that this places on some people, including people that don't really have an option to stay home from their own work. Right. We talked about that. I'm not going to go off on too big of a tangent, but you remember when the premier was talking about th- these outbreaks this is about a year ago among adult populations in Northeast Calgary. Remember talking about how it was, you know, certain ethnic groups were disproportionately affected. <laughs> Advocates started pointing out that these are people that don't have a choice whether or not they go to work, people that are in transportation services, people that are working in fast food, essential services. There's so much to think about here. Fatima on our live chat says the fact that kids with COVID positive family members at home are going into the classroom is mind blowing. Mark says, you know, this is something that's not being discussed you know, anywhere other than real talk it says, you know, the UCP plan clearly to let COVID sweep through the schools. Nothing else explains not informing parents, no contact tracing and no isolating classrooms. Shalane says so far this year, my six year old has missed nine out of 21 days when he has symptoms. I keep him home. We've had him tested twice. Our school is an outbreak school and he had a close contact in class. Gilles says, like everything else with the fourth wave, the definition of outbreak is different now than it was last year. 10% of students is a whole lot of COVID, says Gilles. What about this? Tracy says, my husband's a teacher. He was checking in on an absent student. The parent says there was a COVID case in your class, so we're keeping him home. And that was news to him. The teacher didn't even know. Unbelievable. Julie, Julie Cusick, uh, good friend of the show. She's running for school board. Uh, by the way, here in Edmonton, I'm not endorsing anybody, but I'm not not endorsing Julie, if you know what I'm saying, folks. She says, I feel for all the kids under 12 who haven't had a chance to get vaccinated yet. We really, really need to do better. They keep us. They kept us safe in 2020. And it's our turn in 2021 to keep them safer. How much of a priority? It feels like a stupid question. Pardon me. How much of a priority is vaccine vaccines for kids? 
I think a lot of parents are, you know, waiting on on pins and needles, waiting for the news that it's going to get approved for emergency use. We're hearing, you know, it's moving along uh, as much as they can, but it's that extra tool to feel a little better, right? A little relief that we've offered them at least that protection uh, for against severe outcome. And the fact that they're sitting ducks in these schools is extremely concerning considering the approach that we've taken uh, to not have other measures in place in the meantime. I'm, I'm talking ventilation, I'm talking rapid testing, all the things we could be doing and in the absence of those measures, I think we're just holding out hope that the vaccine for under 12 will come to Alberta and be distributed as soon as possible. Yeah, you know, I'm Sandra says, I'm glad, you know, you're highlighting this situation. You're right. We're oblivious to the hazards that are out there because the government's turning a blind eye here. Uh, Ken makes a good point. You just made it. Uh, Dr. Ken says, you know, 18 months and no federal or provincial incentive to invest in HVAC improvements in schools he says that's ludicrous having kids in schools is critical to students parents and the economy i saw that my friends at apega uh, the association of professional engineers and geoscientists of alberta have, have taken a strong position there on calling for hvac improvements in schools jillian makes a point i think it's so important to reiterate you know that women's work and careers have taken such big hits uh, through this pandemic from having to do homeschooling she says i mean that's just one example there have been Many. I know that you're a you're a student advocacy group, uh, Doc. But is that something you've been keeping an eye on as well? The impact of this on families and in particular women. Absolutely. You know, a lot of the outreach that comes to us are from mothers. Yeah. Um, not saying that dads aren't involved either, but I think the entire pandemic has brought to light and amplified such systemic pressures on women, on mothers, on care work. Um, we have for many years not realized how crucial care uh, is like central to the running of our world and our society and who carries most of that care work is women. And then you put another lens on it and racialize women uh, especially in Alberta, who are doing care in long-term care facilities, who are healthcare workers, who are carrying the family care work on top of their paid work. And suddenly you are seeing from an intersectional lens that we have not done well in this province to recognize these barriers that multiply layer upon layer in both our healthcare and education systems because women carry so much of the load and when they're called to do more than they were even with the pandemic you're going to see a lot of issues because we didn't support the people that were caring for us how would you grade what grade would you would you give to the education minister adriana lagrange right now adriana lagrange who is nowhere to be seen uh in 18 months of a crisis i'm giving her an f uh, I have no qualms about doing that. She has completely let down everybody in this province, children, um, older students, parents, families. She has, I know these are strong words and we are, you know, we are nonpartisan, but as the Ministry of Education facing a crisis for the third year in a row, right? The first year, March, schools were closed. 
2020. So this is the third school year impacted by a crisis, a global crisis. And she has done nothing critical. She's done nothing to acknowledge the gaps that the province's pandemic response have left. And she's going around doing photo shoots at Tim Hortons and things. And I think it's completely unacceptable how she's been missing in action this whole time. And we know that parents email her and she doesn't respond. We know that. We get CC'd, as you do, on tons of parent emails that are like, please respond this time in the subject to catch her attention or her staff's attention. And then she goes and tries to formulate her own handpicked conference or a little meeting group of parent members or council. And you know that they're just handpicking people that align with her. And that's not real engagement. That's not democracy. And that's not accountability in any in any sense. Yeah. And we're seeing more of that, too, I think, with, you know, uh, sort of these Facebook live opportunities and comments being deleted off comment threads. And I mean, obviously, it's a government that's trying to control the narrative and trying to control its message. I have confidence and faith in my fellow Albertans that they're smarter than that. Um, and, and we've got a whole bunch of examples. We don't need to get into it. This is also serving to be a big, I'm not calling COVID a distraction. I'm not saying that this isn't the top priority, but nobody's talking about the curriculum rewrite either right now. Hey, uh, I, I would imagine that your team hasn't forgotten about it. We absolutely have not forgotten about it, but it's almost our strategy to divide us, you know, divide our limited resources and attention. And it's a strategy for sure when they can ram through something that no one agrees with, but we're all stressed out because they're letting COVID run through our families and our neighborhoods. Um, You know, we still have our fingers in the advocacy against the curriculum draft. We've got the municipal elections coming up for school board trustees. And it's underlying the crisis is the other crises in education, right? Funding cuts, um, more barriers for children with complex needs in the public system. That's all happening. And it's almost like it's not a distraction for the UCP. It's actually good cover for them while we can't fight 100% on all, you know, fire on all engines. Um, and we're we're focusing on trying to stay healthy and protect the healthcare system from collapse, education system from going online back and forth. All of this is a good time for them to ram through what we are all dissenting about. Well, let's use the education theme and I'll ask for you to give us an assignment uh, for the thousands of parents that will hear this interview or see it um, that are more than willing to get in touch with their elected officials and to participate in advocacy. I mean, we've already pointed out where people can find you and your team at supportourstudents.ca. You have a strong presence on social media as well, including on Twitter. Uh, People can follow SOS Alberta at SOS Alberta. But what's the assignment for parents right now? The assignment for parents is to keep talking to other parents. You know, you as one person, they can easily ignore, but you need to organize. You need to organize your parent councils. You need to talk to people on the playgrounds about what's really happening. We can do so much from our, you know, our branches, but it's really about expanding the movement and it's about getting together and power in numbers. So, you know, bring it up, bring it in conversation when you are at school and get other parents writing, writing together, sending parent council letters. Um, and then eventually 
you need to understand that this comes down to our choices at ballot time, that this was all part of their policy, their failed policy in COVID management and education and healthcare, and connect the dots for the people who haven't been engaged yet. Dr. Wingley, uh, communications director with Support Our Students Alberta, uh, their volunteers, as, as she detailed, running a crowdsourced K-12 school COVID tracker uh, based on community submissions of school outbreak and case notices. So just to point out the obvious, by the way, as I, as I wrap here, uh, I saw that somebody interacted with your team over the weekend on Twitter where you, where you had said that I think the number at the time, uh, total schools with possible outbreaks reported to SOS 257, 257 schools with possible outbreaks. Somebody said, well, it's way higher than that. And you, you're going, well, it's kind of the point. We're not sure, right? Absolutely. It's only what gets down to us. And, you know, in our phrasing, we say at least we always say at least because you need to understand that it goes through a lot of barriers. It has to be voluntary disclosure to the school. First of all, the school has to decide to tell the parent community, parent community, someone has to send to us. So, you know, what could get rid of all of this uncertainty is if the government stepped in and had all of this information transparent because then these barriers through the community, through the grapevine, through the rumor mill, whatever, all of these barriers don't need to exist if the government was, you know, fulfilling their duty of providing public information related to health during a public health crisis. Dr. Wing Lee, thanks for this. We appreciate your advocacy to say the least. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Yeah, you got it. (laughs) People just basically like asking an elected government to like do the bare minimum. And you'd hope that, I mean, there's politics will infuse itself into everything at all times. And that's a, that's a nonpartisan reality. Everything is political, but when pandemic management becomes more political than anything else, in other words, stop daily updates, stop reporting numbers, stop contact tracing in schools, and then ride out the storm of public anger to a point where people chill out. And you know that that's the advice that the premier and cabinet is taking. Just ride it out. This too shall pass. You know, I saw somebody post over the weekend that since the best summer ever, and and yeah, don't worry, Robson Fletcher from the CBC will get his due because coming up on Eat Your Words presented by Prairie Catering on Thursday, I'm just stealing Robson's work because he's taken Jason Kenney and Minister Tyler Shandro's media availability from back in June when they announced the best summer ever plan, when they announced that virtually all restrictions would be dropped in July 1st so so everybody could basically have the best summer ever. Uh, now, looking back on that news conference, I know a lot of you will say, will say, well, at the time we told you how nuts that was, but it sounds even worse now. And you know that the advice is just ride it out. The advice to the politicians, pretend everything's cool, limit your availability, do not take questions from journalists, do not make yourself available to the public, do not put numbers in front of people on a daily basis that will infuriate them or worse yet, if you're this government, motivate them. That's the last thing you want. We'll continue to be here bringing you the perspectives that matter from the people, the movers and the shakers that are keeping us informed across this country, Sharon's watching in live, says, you know, two of the grandkids tested positive a couple of weeks ago. 
they both had positive cases in their classrooms. Parents were not notified by the school. Mom found out through other parents. Neil's watching. He's a teacher. Says, I've had several kids out with COVID whose friends have told me that that's why they're out of school. School's not been officially notified, and therefore there's been no notice to parents. Fatima says, I can't wait to give my kids vaccine protection. COVID and its variants, terrifying. Nicole says, let's see how Thanksgiving goes. I'm worried about that. I'm really worried about that. Thanksgiving. Jillian, who's a teacher as well, says, I'm not worried about the new curriculum. It's it's literally unteachable. The government can force it on teachers, but you can't build a car if somebody gives you half the instructions for making a boat. It's that bad. I'll be stealing that, Jillian, in future. Although I'll do my best to credit you. All right, I promise I will. Our friends at Athabasca University want to remind you that, you know, they didn't have to scramble and slap something together to be able to provide online post-secondary education when this pandemic hit. They've been doing it for years. It's why they are Canada's online university. You can visit them online today at AthabascaU.ca to learn more about their world-class accredited online programs and courses. They offer you the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. I told you about a conversation with Real Talker Jennifer I had last week. She told me, she said, I was excited to see Athabasca U partnering with Real Talk. She says, I'm earning my psychology degree there while she works full time. Not easy, right? She's burning the candle at both ends, but she said it's nice sometimes when she feels like hammering down on her studies, she can when she needs to take a bit of a break. She can. You can learn more at AthabascaU.ca. I want to recognize our good friends at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food this morning. All I can tell you, it's all I have to tell you, is it's what we feed our four-legged family members, Moses and Monroe. Our boxer, our lab, both love the quality raw food from Grand Dog Essentials. They're on different diets because they have different nutritional needs. You can learn more about the the 40-pound box of raw food that's dropped off. I mean, that's when we get ours on a weekly basis to our door. They'll do it for you in Edmonton, Calgary, even central Alberta. And the promo code REALTALK gets you 10% off at granddog.ca. 10% off your first-time order at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. Well, our next guest, it's fair to use the word icon. He is a legendary Canadian uh, journalist, best known for his five decades of esteemed work at the CBC, where he was chief correspondent of CBC News and an anchor of The National for 30 years. He's a distinguished fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. He is host of the daily podcast, The Bridge, and he is author of the instant number one best-selling book, off the record. You can find it officially tomorrow on October 5th. What a thrill to welcome to Real Talk, the great Peter Mansbridge. Thanks for making hey, time Ryan. for us. Hey, Ryan, it's great to be here with you. I've been listening here for the last 10 minutes or so. Great show. No well, wonder you're doing so well. I, uh, I appreciate that coming from you. I, I have to be honest, Peter, I slipped in the Grand Dog Essentials read right before you because anybody that listens to The Bridge knows you've got a dog food sponsor too. I thought we might have a little fun with that off the top. <laughs> I was wondering, how does that work out? We both got dog foods um, sponsoring our program. I, 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 people could draw a lot of conclusions from that, but I think people they might. say they're great sponsors. 
Yeah, they are. They sure are. Uh, if you were listening uh, for the last ten minutes, then you've you've heard me throwing a few hand grenades, and uh, and I'm and I've not been shy in how I feel about stories. Uh, you you were of course recognized for for many years and respected and earned the biggest interviews that anybody ever achieved because of your objectivity. How has life changed for you as a storyteller, as an interviewer, since you started podcasting? Well, it does give me a little leeway. Um, I don't, I don't go down quite the same lane that you're on in terms of uh, being very outspoken and good for you. Uh, you know, I'm glad you are. Uh, the country needs that kind of discussion. I'm still, you know, after 50 years of trying to be the guy who had no opinion on anything other than good journalism. Um, it, it's been an interesting departure into what I still call a hobby. I mean, my my podcast, The Bridge, really is. A hobby. I just I do it out of my house, and I I'm alone. You know, I'm watching you. You've got like this incredible staff. It looks like the CBC there. You got people <laughs> all over the place. You got people answering the phone. You got people in the studio there with you. It's me. It's all alone here in my. Uh, right now, I'm in Toronto. We have a little condo in Toronto, uh, as well as our, our main house is in Stratford, Ontario. Um, but I I use my office to to do the program and I, I do it all by myself. I twirl all the knobs and do the whole bit. It's a bit of a change for you from, from a guy that uh, in, in my mind had had the greatest job in Canada uh, for a long time. I, I heard you on the, on the Sunday magazine yesterday. As a matter of fact, it was a fluke. I was, l- let me tell you something. This is just, I, I'm going to do my best to, to pretend like, you know, we're colleagues here, Peter, and not that I've just been your biggest fan for a lot of years, but, but I got off the ice with my son yesterday. I'm, I'm, I'm assistant coach with this hockey team. He's playing Timbits. He's six. And I right. checked my phone. I had a notification that Peter Mansbridge followed me on Twitter I felt quite chuffed and I walked out to the truck. I started the Jeep and I CBC radio comes on and there you are talking to P on the Sunday magazine. I thought, well, this is this is this is uh, quite uh, quite a, an opportunity of great fortune for me as I prepare to interview. But but I thought it was kind of interesting. You told her you said it, it took you about two weeks uh, to get over not hosting the national anymore. And then you were ready to move on. I was surprised to hear that. I, I wouldn't I would imagine that would be a tough one to walk away from. I did think it was going to take longer than that. But I got to say, you know, I mean, I chose my exit timing and the whole bit. So when it actually happened, it was a bit of a shock for a few days, but then I kind of moved on. I mean, I'm doing lots of other little things. I still obviously have a lot of friends at the CBC, and I still do documentary work for the CBC. I do two one-hour docs a year for them, and I just came out of the Arctic. I was up there for a couple of weeks working on an Arctic sovereignty climate change documentary that will run early next year. Um, so it's, you know, it's all good and the transition was all good. And, you know, I tend and always have not to look back, you know, not to second guess myself on decisions that I make in, in, in terms of my career and in terms of my life. You know, you, I, I choose to, to move on and, uh, and try to enjoy what I went through and what I'm about to go through. Let me just say, I, I, it's so great to hear that you're doing the Timbits coaching thing. I did that for my son, mm. uh, and and that carried on all through his like you know minor hockey career, like you know as a, a young kid. I, I was a terrible coach. I mean, even the kids would sort of just open the door, please, and you know you don't need to say anything else. <laughs> and that's kind of what my coaching was. Uh, we had you know real coaches as well, but I, I was the door opener. 
We had uh, so it was the first game yesterday for these little guys, uh, and uh, it was kind of funny. Our Wyatt, he he he's just taking laps. Like the plays underway, you know, they all gaggle together, right? And and he's just sure. taking laps, and he and he set up shop in front of the opposition goaltender when the plays in the other end. Uh, not the type of thing you worry about when you're coaching Timbits. And he came back to the bench and I said, I said, you were talking to the goalie down there. I said, what were you telling him? And, and why it says, well, I was just telling him I'm going to stand right here. So it's easy to score on him when the puck comes to me. And I, <laughs> I thought, wow, you're talking to him like that when you're six. We, we might have to tweak that a little bit or, or maybe I'll double down on it and see if he makes the show. Um, Peter, yeah. you, you, you talk about the Arctic. I mean, let, let me reference your interview that, that, that aired yesterday on Sunday magazine. Uh, you know, Pia, the host asked, asked you what, what tune you'd like to go out on. In past, you'd selected Gord Downey, and I want to ask you about him later. Um, but you chose Stan. Ro- you, you chose uh, Stan Rogers, the the Northwest Passage, and you teed up uh, to, to a story that I said. You know what? When I talk to him tomorrow, I want to hear this full story. You're on an icebreaker, and that mm-hmm. tune is playing. You obviously have a love affair with the Arctic. Would you take us into that onto that boat that day? Sure. Um, it was the Louis Saint Laurent, which is Canada's you know biggest icebreaker. Um, oldest too. I think it was uh, built in the 1960s and it's been plowing the, the Arctic waters uh, ever since then. Uh, it's been to the North Pole a few times. Uh, you know, it's done a lot. But I, it, this was 2006 and I was on, I, I went through the Northwest Passage, which was a huge thrill for me. I mean, I'd wanted to do this all my life. I'd read all the history. I knew the, you know, Sir John Franklin story and all the other explorers um, who had, you know, tried to find the Northwest Passage. Uh, so suddenly there I was on it, but I, we brought along, because we were, we were doing the National Live from the deck of the Louis Saint Laurent, which was no small thing to achieve, especially in the high Arctic where, you know, I, I won't get into all the technology, partly because I don't understand it, but to try and hit the satellite to get the signal live back to Toronto uh, took a bit of work, especially on, on board a ship that was going it was traveling at the time. So we had a couple of guys who were actually standing there physically holding the satellite dish and moving it a tiny fraction of a centimeter every couple of seconds so we could keep that link. Um, anyway, we had brought along a copy of Stan Rogers' Northwest Passage, uh, one of his most uh, you know famous ballads. And, um, and we played it once, and then we played it again, like through all the speakers on the ship. And it's... Listen, if you know the Franklin story, it's, you know, it's a chilling story. Uh, Not just because it happened in the Arctic, but um, uh, people really got into it because you realized you were in his footsteps uh, and in the footsteps of all those who were the 130 or so guys who lost their lives on that expedition as well. Um, So it was was a special moment and the Arctic has always, you know, I've been lucky, you know, like you have, Ryan. I mean, I've, I've traveled a lot. I've traveled around the world a few times. I've been to beautiful spots. I've been to awful spots. Seen a lot of things, many I wish I'd never seen. Um, But the Arctic is so special. And it's so special to us as Canadians. And I was lucky enough to get to go there and have been there many, many times, but all because of my work. The ordinary person can't get to the Arctic because of money. It's incredibly expensive. Uh, to travel in the Arctic, just ask the people who live there. Um, but, uh, you know, these were opportunities I had that uh, I'll never regret and 
always remember. Isn't it interesting, you know, f- you know, from the technical side of storytelling, you want you want, you know, either on television, the establishing shot or, you know, a, a great author would would sort of set the scene, you know, in chapter one or what have you in the Arctic to me. Um, and I'd love your insight on this sets the scene or creates a context for so many important conversations uh, could be Arctic sovereignty, national security, could be climate change, could be indigenous relations. I mean, really up there. And I know you've had an opportunity to talk to, you know, I mean, you know, people 100 years old that have that have seen so much change up there. It must be just be a from a, from a storytelling standpoint. What a fascinating opportunity. Uh, it certainly is. And you can't miss every every direction in which you look. The, the scenery is spectacular. Like, and that's the first big shock because most people they hear about the Arctic. They say, well, it's just, you know, ice, and maybe tundra, but it's boring. It ain't boring. It's spectacular to look at. And the people are fascinating and and we don't listen to them enough. You know, I like to say if, you know, Sir John Franklin had listened to the Inuit that he that he allegedly bumped into and who gave him advice on uh, how to survive in that climate, he would have lived. He may well have found the Northwest Passage, uh, but he didn't. He ignored it and, and, and walked on into, uh, into oblivion, really. Um, but they still have things to say. They certainly have a lot to say about the situation surrounding climate change and sovereignty. I mean, some people, some Inuit were moved around in the Arctic because they were our original kind of flag. When we wanted to plant the flag in the Arctic to show that it was ours, Canada, we said, well, let's just move some Inuit families to that island. They didn't have any choice. They were just moved. Um, and, you know, and it's a sad part of our history. And we've, you know, since apologized. We're, we're good at apologizing. Um, and we have on that front. But you're right. I mean, on, on the, on the uh, climate change situation, I mean, they're, they're the pointed end of climate change in Canada. I mean, the changes that are going on there are dramatic. And those who... You know, and they're, they're kind of puzzled when they hear that, you know, some Southerners don't believe in climate change, hmm. that it's not happening. Go up there and you'll, you'll see where it's happening. I stood next to a glacier. Well, next to it was a half a mile away from it. Um, this is just a couple of weeks ago where I could hear the water melting, pouring off that glacier. Um at a you know a dramatic pace these are glaciers that i i saw 20 years ago that weren't melting at all you know change happens we we get it we understand but it's ha- happening right now at a tremendous rate and uh we're not all ready for it that's for sure and they're seeing it they see it in terms of you know the uh, patterns that uh, that animals and bird life uh, travel through the the uh, fish is you know in some places you know, I remember going with a fisherman near Clyde River in the, on, off Baffin Island. He says, you know, he's 75 years old. He says, I'm catching fish, fish I've never seen before because hmm. they're moving further north because the water's warmer. So things are happening. Things are changing, and we should listen. You, you've had, I would imagine, it's, it's not lost on you over the course of your career, an opportunity to see how certain big subjects are covered differently or how the narrative changes on on subjects like climate change i mean obviously you and your colleagues at the cbc would have been big talking about things like acid rain in the 1980s um and you know i mean the the evolution of uh, human awareness on climate change has been significant Uh, another one 
of course, would be reconciliation or truth and reconciliation. People can check out the the Friday episode of The Bridge of your podcast, your Good Talk segment with uh, Bruce Anderson, Chantal Hebert, who I think is just absolutely brilliant, um, talking about, uh, in particular, the prime minister's Tofino getaway. And I know that there are a lot of circumstances around that. People are saying, well, we don't know about the conversations he had in private. I think it's worth noting that his itinerary said he was in Ottawa in private meetings when he wasn't. You say we're good at apologizing. Uh, As Canadians, does the prime minister owe Canadians or in particular indigenous people in Canada an apology for for being on the beach on Thursday? Well, he seemed to start doing that yesterday by apologizing to the the band chief in um, Kelowna. Was it Kelowna or Kamloops? Kamloops. Uh, For, um, you know, not responding to their invitation that he stopped there for um, last Thursday. Uh, You know, I think that's... You know, we don't know all, you're right, we don't know all the circumstances behind what happened on Thursday. But we know at the end of the day that his office, at least, lied to Canadians about where he was and what he was doing. Um, and it took them an awful long time to uh, to correct the record. And it just looked bad. I mean, this was his idea to create that day, Right. And it was a day where kids from, you know, coast to coast to coast uh, spent the day, those who were still in school that day, learning, talking, understanding what truth and reconciliation was all about. And here's the guy who had engineered that, and he's in Tofino. And this is no knock on Tofino. I don't know whether you've been there. I have. It's spectacular. Amazing, yeah. Yeah. Um, But... It just didn't fit the image that I think a lot, even a lot of those who have stood steadfastly by the prime minister uh, for that day. The uh, you know there are a lot of people who don't like him, and it's deep. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember what it was like for his father, especially in parts of Western Canada where I lived at the time, and uh, they hated him. They absolutely hated him. Um, some of the feelings you see for Justin Trudeau now are deeper than that. Do you see similarities uh, I, between uh, Pierre Elliott and, and Justin? I mean, uh, no, they're, they're very different in leadership on, on style. That, yeah, yeah, absolutely different. Um, it, it, what's, what's so odd about last week is that he actually does have, you know, for all this talk about Justin Trudeau privilege and doesn't understand what real people are, are like or do, he actually has a better understanding of that than his dad had. He, you know, he loves getting in a crowd and talking to people. Uh, the old man was not, <laughs> not a fan of that. Didn't enjoy that. It was kind of beneath him. Um, you know, I interviewed him, I don't know, six, eight, ten times. And uh, they weren't great interviews. Now, part of it was I was just a kid out of the prairies, out of Saskatchewan and Manitoba, and um, I didn't really have a grasp of some of the big national issues when I landed in Ottawa and was suddenly, you know, involved in a lot of heavy stuff. Um, Over time, I, you know, obviously learned a little more, Uh, but uh, but they're different. Uh, They're they're very different. I mean, listen, I, I have respect for for all political leaders. I know Jason Kenney you know, fairly well from his time in Ottawa. 
Um, he's in a, <laughs> you know, he's, I don't need to tell you, uh, he's got a lot of problems right now. But there's, you know, what I've found over the 50, 55 years of covering politics, whether it's federal or provincial or municipal, is that the majority of these people are pretty decent, hardworking people who believe what they're doing is good for us. Now, we may not agree with that, and that's why we have the opportunity to vote them out and turf them out. Um, but they don't go in there, the vast majority of them, they don't go in there to screw us. They go in there because they think they have ways of making life better for us. And I've always felt that, and I've felt that our system depends on people, whatever their stripe is of political party, to run for office. Um, and, and we have to be careful about, about discouraging so many of them um, by the way we, we often treat them. Sometimes deservedly, sometimes not. Uh, we just have to be aware that, uh, that our system depends on public service. And if you want to believe in democracy, you've got to participate. Yeah, no kidding. If you're if you're just joining us, tuning in on uh, live streaming, streaming the uh, Mixler audio app, we're talking to Peter Mansbridge, uh, new book out tomorrow officially off the record. I think of two pretty high profile uh, former Stephen Harper cabinet ministers that came back to Alberta uh, to do what they could, uh, I think, in, in the context of, of, of serving as premier. I think of Jim Prentice. And then of Jason Kenney, both of them, uh, at least in Prentice's case, kind of chewed up and spat out by the electorate in 2015, ending the 44 year dynasty. And then now I think it's safe to say if if Jason Kenney were to call an election, he'd see him and his term limited to to, you know, one term. That's obviously a lot of a lot of ground to cover before 2023, the next election. So we'll see a lot can happen in politics. But my point is, Alberta has seen uh, far from a boring political landscape over the past, let's say, eight years or so. You've covered politics across the country for a half century. What do you make of what's going on in Alberta right now? I mean, first of all, I think it's worth noting that Premier Jason Kenney is is being attacked uh, from two factions, almost opposite sides of, of, of what you might describe as his base. Number one, the urban conservative that would like to see this government do more, I think, on the COVID front. It believes the government could have done more to to help the economy along, et cetera. And then you've got kind of the rural, and I'm obviously, Peter, speaking in great generalities here, but the rural conservatives, the the so-called freedom lovers, we see the, that word flaring up quite frequently. They're upset that there are any public health measures in place at all. I mean, w- when you take a look from Ontario at Alberta right now, what do you, what do you make of what's going on? Um, well, Doug Ford gets to uh, learn a lot by watching what's happening in Alberta and what's happening in Ottawa and trying to find the middle of the road between those two, which he's, he's done not, not too badly. He's, you know, his election's next summer, uh, and he's trying to time everything uh, to his advantage. We'll see how that turns out. Let me say this about Alberta, because I think most Albertans at least those who who know me and have strong feelings one way or the other about the CBC, probably don't know about me. Um, my father was the chief deputy minister of health in Alberta during the Lougheed years. 
He'd been in Ottawa. He'd come up through the federal public service. And Peter Law, he'd putting together his team in Alberta, came to Ottawa and poached some top civil servants and brought them back to Alberta. And my dad was one of them. And I got to tell you, in this last uh, 20 months, and certainly in the last couple of months, I've thought often about what my dad would have been saying and how he would have been handling this situation. Uh, he passed you know, 10 years ago now. But I've been trying to put that in my mind. How would he have handled it? I know what he would have said. He would have said, listen, I would have done, I would have been brokenhearted about the way things are right now. But I would also firmly believe that it wouldn't have got to this, not because of necessarily my leadership and my skills, but because of the premier's skills. I mean, he was a huge fan of Peter Lougheed. Um, and, you know, he, he'd worked for a lot of different people. He'd worked at a senior level for Pierre Trudeau. Um, you, know, he'd, you know, he'd been in the Royal Air Force uh, during the Second World War. I mean, he'd seen what leaders looked like from all different levels and different professions. And he always put Peter Lougheed at the top of his page. And so I've thought of that a lot, you know. I mean, listen, a lot of things that happened in this last 20 months, nobody foresaw. And we, it, it's easy to say, oh, well, so-and-so would have handled it better. We don't know. We just simply don't know. We're left with what we do have and trying to sort out the situation we're all in together. You know, I mean, we keep saying that. And you see some evidence of it now. You see the, you know, some of the help that's moving into Alberta, just as Alberta tried to help some places a year ago, right? Yeah, the big shipments of PPE, and I mean, I, I know exactly. that yeah, about a year ago. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what Canada's about, right? It's not about sniping from the other side of, you know, the Rockies or the other side of the Great Lakes. It's about helping when help is needed. Um, and when help is asked for, which isn't always the same thing. Um, I respect, I love that you brought up your dad. I wanted to ask you about this. This is something that, that uh, you and I have in common. I, 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 f I first honed my, my interview skills, and, and by that, what I mean is I learned to listen uh, sitting around the, the Sunday dinner table at uh, my grandpa's stand and Grandma Norma's house, 611 38th Avenue in Calgary was a special place. And and my grandparents would take great pride and in, in they would they would almost, uh, you know, they would compose this this table where they'd, they'd bring together people from different uh, ethnic and religious backgrounds, different age demographics. I was I remember as a nine or 10 or 11 year old boy sitting there as my grandpa would hold court you know, a great storyteller himself. And, and that was where we, uh, I learned, I think, if I look back on it, uh, to first really explore issues and hear different perspectives. And, and I love how you've written and talked about your family, not just the dinner table, the lunch table as well. That, that's kind of where Peter Mansbridge started figuring out he could be Peter Mansbridge, right? <laughs> well, it is. And I, you know, I was lucky. Uh, I mean, my, my dad used to come home for lunch as well as dinner. And he was there every day for lunch and every day for dinner. My sister and I, and then eventually my little brother, um, we'd all, you know, gather around the table and lunch was more of a sort of in and out. Dinner was longer. And dinner often meant discussing whatever the issues of that day were. We're talking the early 60s. And there were lots of them, lots of things always coming up. Um, but he encouraged us 
to talk about it, to ask questions and to debate issues and, and to be able to see it from the other side. Uh, he was great at that. He had been a debater in school in, in England. And, uh, you know, if, if he was winning an argument, he would suddenly switch horses, go to the other side to try and make it a more interesting discussion. But, you know, you touched on it right there, and it's true. I mean, it, it's kind of, I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't realize it till much later, but that's, it was kind of the, it's the basics of good journalism. You know, storytelling is always the most important thing, the ability to tell a story. But it starts off with the ability to be curious, to be interested in what's going on around you, and to ask questions, challenge assumptions, and then take what you learn and tell other people who are equally interested. I mean, that's kind of the basics. And, you know, you obviously layer on lots of experience and education, et cetera, et cetera, around that. But I've found, and I don't know whether you have too, but in, in this crazy business we, we call journalism, that if you don't have those three things and you see people come into the business every once in a while, and they don't have that. They're not, you know, kind of naturally curious and they don't like asking questions and they don't like telling people what they've learned. They're not going to make it. I mean, that's just not what we do. What we do is those three things and we do them well if we can and we learn from others to make our, uh, uh, make our excellence better. You've uh, been a huge supporter of, of young journalists or journalists uh, sort of entering the primes of their careers, if you will. And obviously, you've seen how the industry has evolved and changed. I mean, you're evidence of it now with the work that you're doing and, and continuing to tell these great stories. Uh, we had a chance a, a number of weeks ago to talk to one of your former colleagues at the CBC, Lyndon McIntyre, about about his new book. And he talked about his assessment of the state of journalism. And one of the things he said that I thought was particularly interesting, he's concerned about the, the, the premise that content is king and content, content, content. In other words, journalists are being looked upon to feed the machine, to fuel the machine almost nonstop to the point where, I mean, this this is my interpretation, not his words, but that 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 important contemplative period uh, is hastened or shortened. Uh, what's your assessment? I mean, it's obviously a huge question, uh, but your assessment of, of journalism in particular in Canada right now, what are, what are some of the observations you make and, and are you concerned at all? Oh, I'm concerned. Um, just on Lyndon's point, and, you know, he's right, especially in the, uh, from where he came from. Uh, you know, he came from investigative journalism and the Fifth Estate and, and, and the books he's written, um, uh, where... He takes time to develop his story because it's, his stories are developed on the back of a lot of hard work and investigations. And so he's right. I mean, if, if, they, were, if they had demanded of Lyndon McIntyre for his career that he have a story a day, you never would have seen some of the great, great stories he did because that's just not what he does. Um, but the journalism business depends on stories every day, right? So there's a whole different section of, uh, of the news business, if you will, that is doing day-to-day -day news. Here's my issue with things. There are two issues, really. There, there's one, this kind of mix of um, news and opinion, straight-up news reporting and mixing opinion into that, the opinion of the journalist. We get ourselves in all kinds of problems if we allow that to happen. Unless there's a clear division. You remember the when I started doing the National, it was a one-hour program. There was really two programs. It was the National and the Journal. It was myself, Knowlton Nash before me, and Barbara Frum. And Knowlton and I did the news, right? And 
Barbara strayed further into opinion with her panels and big interviews and her commentaries and what have you. But it was, there was a clear division. You understood what you were getting. The fear now is that everything's mixed together and you can't really separate opinion from news. Or you see news journalists who are paid to be just focus on the news, not to have opinion, but then they're on Twitter giving their opinion. So you kind of know where they're coming from on some things. Not all of them, but some of them. That's a problem. But I see the bigger problem in journalism today is one of, uh, you know, trust. Mm. Confidence on the part of, uh, of those who depend on us, listeners and viewers and readers, um, that they're continually asking, why should I believe you? Because there's so much out there that's not true. And some of it is ending up on your programming. So why should I believe you? I would believe you if you told me a little bit more about how you make decisions. So I think we have to be much more transparent. We have to, we have to be able to explain uh, in a much better way why we cover what we cover. Why this is news and that isn't news. Why this makes it to the top of the program and this doesn't even make it on the program why we give anonymity to certain sources. I mean, there's a, there are a dozen different areas where things can work to our advantage if we're more transparent about how we do our job. Uh, because there are lots of professions out there where trust isn't high, and they can kind of get away with it. We can't. You know, people depend as a pillar of democracy on journalism. And if they don't trust it, or there's a continuing um, question of trust, that's a big problem for us as we move forward. You know, you add that to the huge explosion of different ways of getting your news. I mean, I did, you know, I did a, a you mentioned the Monk School I, at the University of Toronto. I did a lecture there before COVID with 100 graduate students. And I said, what's your major uh, source of news? And each one, uh, gave me an answer. It always used to be television, right? Which I I, I never thought was a good thing because TV is you know only so deep. Um, but none of them picked news. Uh, none of them picked t- television. None of them picked radio. None of them picked print, the traditional print. They all picked social media, and these weren't like seventeen-year-olds. These were like these were graduate students. They're in their early twenties, smart young people. And the majority said social media. Now, it could be Facebook, could be Twitter, could be any number of different things. And that's okay if you believe what you're reading, if you know the source of that Facebook story. You know, did it come from the BBC? Did it come from the Globe and Mail, the New York Times? Did it come from Ryan Jesperson? You know, where did it come from? And if you can't believe it, or if you don't even know where it came from, then you're you're, you got a problem. I'm so grateful for your time. I, I want to, before we wrap, uh, and thank you for joining us. Uh, you know, your, your book off the record, you, you sort of, you talk, I know you don't want it to be called a memoir, uh, because you're still alive and well, <laughs> you're still working. Uh, Volume two. yeah, Volume two. <laughs> you know, uh, so we know the Margaret Thatcher interview, uh, was a total disaster. 
And yeah. and you're right about some some great opportunities you had, but I know that you know you've shared that one of the all time uh, most meaningful uh, interviews was of course with uh, with Gord. And I guess I'll clarify for Canadians, it's it's either me one or two. It'll either be Lightfoot or Downey. In this case, we're we're talking about Gord. We're talking about the front man for the tragically hip, the Canadian legend, uh, who who of course accomplished so much over the course of his career, but in particular uh, following his uh, diagnosis of of that. Uh, brain cancer in particular the secret path album his advocacy for reconciliation i'm mean, just amazing um i like everybody else uh watched that interview that aired on october 13th 2016 you and him it was as far as i can remember the first interview that he had granted uh since the band had announced his diagnosis and what hit me like a ton of bricks you already know what i'm going to say is when he revealed that he'd written peter on his hand uh, to remind yeah. him who he was talking to. And you guys had been friends for many years. Yeah, we've that, been friends for 20 years, but, you know, before they really hit it uh, big. Um, but they were about to. And, you know, I, he didn't just have... This was as we sat down to do the interview where he thought he was going to have to stop every five minutes because he just needed to take his time. As it turned out, we went for an hour and he never stopped. But his hand was covered with things. I mean, in the middle of it was Peter because he wanted to make sure they didn't forget my name. But so were a lot of other things written on on, on his hand of, of things that if you looked at it, you would say, well, he, you know, he must know that. But, it, you know, his brain was being eaten away by the cancer that was going through his body um, in, the, in that final concert, uh, those concerts across the country. He needed a, tele, a teleprompter for songs he'd been singing all his life, right? Because of the same fear. But you're right. Listen, you know, that those final years of his life are going to be remembered, obviously, for the attachment we all had with him and with his band. Um, but for his nudging us in a not-too-quiet way to be aware of this issue of reconciliation and that we had to gather together to find the solution, all of us, you know, indigenous and non-indigenous, that we had to find a way because until we do, uh, you know, there are going to be issues about us as a country. We're lucky. We live in a great country. Do we have differences? Absolutely. Lots of them. Um, but we live in a great country. We share so much, uh, this is one of the things that we can't afford to, to, to let continue. It just, we can't. And everybody, from the prime minister on down, uh, has to pull their weight. And, you know, I, look, I've been around a long time. I'm 73. I've seen my share of things that I, I, I wish I, I'd stepped in front of and said, this can't happen. Um, but I didn't, just like a lot of other people didn't. Um, but the generation, today's generation of young people, they seemed bound and determined, and part of it was through the nudging of, of Gord Downey, that they're not going to let this continue. They were the ones probably who were most disappointed last week in what happened on, on uh, National Truth and Reconciliation Day with, uh, with the Prime Minister. So, you know... Uh, Gord, we can thank Gord for a lot of things, uh, and we'll, you know, we'll never forget him because his music will live 
you know, longer than we do. And, uh, and uh, we can take great comfort in that. But we can take great comfort in, in knowing that he was on the right side of history and trying to get us to join him on that side. So very well said. No surprise. Peter Mansbridge, new book. You can find it uh, available tomorrow officially, an instant bestseller off the record. And I implore you, Real Talkers, to subscribe to his podcast, The Bridge. By the way, let me ask you, you chose to go with it. You're, you're supposed to be easing. You're supposed to be doing these documentaries, writing these books. You choose a daily podcast, Peter. Nobody would have blamed you for once a week. I know. I was supposed to, you know, when I started, I thought it was, uh, I started in the election of 2019, thought I'll just do the campaign. Yeah. And then COVID hit. And, you know, then it's just, then there was another campaign. And, uh, and now we're into that period of trying to determine exactly what we're going to do. There's a great thirst. You know it. There's great hunger in this country uh, for a, a, a good discussion frequently about politics. Uh, and the way we we treat them in this country, and you know, I find you know the, the areas that, that that are that love the discussion most are Ontario, Alberta, BC. Those, uh, that's where I get most of my reaction from. You know, I get it from Atlantic Canada, and I get it from uh, uh, other parts of the prairies, but and and some from Quebec, but. It's mostly those three, and I get a lot from Alberta. And it, and what I love about podcasts, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing, the majority of reaction you get is not crank. It's really thoughtful. It doesn't matter from what spectrum, or spectrum it's coming from. It's all over. But it's really thoughtful and engaging and smart. Um, and uh, that's been really encouraging. Love that. A remaining huge fan, Peter. Uh, today's been a highlight of my career to this point. I really appreciate your. We took you. Into, <laughs> oh, I hope things get better for you. <laughs> we, <laughs> we took you into <laughs> overtime, and I uh, thank you for that. I hope we haven't stepped on anybody's toes. But uh, your insight. I mean, we could listen to you talk all day. Uh, thanks for this. Thank you, Ryan. It's been a treat. You got it. That's Peter Mansbridge. Feels like that voice. We started the interview and somebody just went, that voice. <laughs> Unbelievable stuff. Uh, you can let us know what you make of that interview. Uh, Sharon says, I needed this today. Mark wonders, are you on the right side of history? A thought to ponder. Yeah, I think that's great, Mark. A lot of comments here on our live chat. I appreciate it. Uh, coming up in just a moment, we'll talk to Dr. Raj Sherman. He's got an interesting perspective as a, a former Alberta politician. Uh, he's an ER physician as well, which which certainly gives him, I think, a, uh, a unique perspective on, on what's going on right now. The politics of pandemic management. It's what we've been talking about today on education and healthcare. Uh, this show, this Monday show, no joke. Uh, before we move on, let me remind you that our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, a special offer every month for real talkers for the first half of, I'm going to be going heavy on the burgers and cheeseburgers, not just on what I'm purchasing at the Dairy Queen myself, but also on reminding you that you can get two single cheeseburgers for five bucks. I personally recommend the two doubles for seven. It's just more fiscally responsible to double up on the double cheeseburgers. Two of them for seven bucks. These are the 100% all beef patties. 
topped with processed cheddar cheese pickles, ketchup, mustard, served on that classic warm toasted Dairy Queen bun. But I'm really, once we get into the second half of October, going to be reminding you that it is Miracle Treat Day coming up on Thursday, October 28th. Don't worry, I'll remind you a whole bunch more. All Blizzard sale proceeds, all proceeds on that day donated to the Stollery Children's Hospital. But you know what? Let me tell you something about the Dairy Queens at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. All the other Dairy Queens are going with the proceeds of the Blizzards. These guys go with all of their proceeds from everything. That's right, the whole sale, right? The whole sale, not just the profits, the entire sale. That's why we're proud to partner with them, the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Our friends at Eden Landscaping are getting ready for the snow to fall. It's it's when they'll finally put away some of the, the heavy equipment, right? Maybe they'll let their boots dry out for a little while while they head into the office, start catching up on the emails and meeting with clients so they can bring outdoor spaces to life. It's never too soon, nor is it ever too late, to start putting a Pinterest board together, start clipping those photos of an outdoor space you'd love to emulate, the dream you'd love to see turned into reality. Mike and his team thrive on challenges, and they spend their winter months preparing for spring construction. You talk to them, you don't have to talk to anybody else. You don't have to hire anybody else. You don't have to general contract the project yourself. They don't stop until you're satisfied at Eden Landscaping. You'll find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. And a shout out to our friends at Local Waste. They know that this is the time of year where a lot of you are going to be taking on big yard cleanup commitments. Our neighbors, neighbors a couple of doors down, we're doing like the, the, the arbor work. This is kind of the time of year. It makes sense early spring and into fall is when you want to be trimming these trees, pruning them. Well, it creates oftentimes a bit bigger of a mess than your standard garbage pickup. You know, that city garbage pickup is going to be able to do. At Local Waste, you have a chance to keep it local and line up a bin that's right for your needs. You know, you may be imagining these big, huge bins you see outside the hotels and shopping malls. They got smaller ones too. Waste and recycling management solutions from a family owned business. It's been that way for a quarter century, continues to grow. You can give them a shout at 780 936 8592, or if you're in Saskatchewan, 306 992 2913, and find them online at localwaste.ca. Of course, as if I need to tell you, Trash Talk coming up on Friday. If you have something you need to get off your chest, you can send it to us by way of email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you label it Trash Talk, and we'll consider it to be included in the final five minutes or so of our broadcast week. You can find the Trash Talk file, by the way, as a standalone on YouTube. Thanks for those of you that subscribe to our Real Talk Ryan Jesperson YouTube page. And of course, if you subscribe to our podcast, anywhere you get podcasts, you know that on Saturday, we send you Trash Talk as a cut it's just trash talk and we know that that fires up a lot of you on saturday we hear from you on twitter and we absolutely love it well our next guest is is literally on the front line uh when it comes to health care through the course of this pandemic he's an er physician in our home province of alberta he's also got political experience a, a longtime stalwart if you will at the alberta legislature uh, he was the leader of the Alberta Liberals uh, from 2011 to 2015. He's also a clinical lecturer in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Alberta, a friend of mine. It's nice to welcome to the program. As a matter of fact, making his debut this morning, Dr. Raj Sherman. It's good to see your face again. 
Ryan, it's good to see you. Thanks, thanks for having me. You, you know, the the last time that you and I hung out in person, I don't know if you'll remember this, we were cooking breakfast together on the set of a TV show that's not even in existence anymore on breakfast television. I remember you. This was leading up to an election. You were banging on the table as the eggs were cooking. You're banging on the table, pointing at the camera, going, pay attention, Alberta, pay attention. And I thought there's never a dull moment when Dr. Sherman's in the house. Uh, we thought that those were high stakes then, but now I would imagine you're probably going to agree with me that these are some of the most challenging months of your career to this point. Ryan, as you know, um, our world is faced with the deadliest infectious illness in more than 100 years. You know, we have 700,000 of our friends down south of the border that have died. That's more people than World War I and World War II combined. In fact, our healthcare systems have been thrown into chaos and crisis. Tens of thousands of surgeries have been canceled. And that's despite all the lockdown measures that we've had, all the masking. We haven't had, this is unprecedented uh, in, in 100 years. So we have major problems and we, and we got a lot of work to do. How are you doing, like personally? Uh, I, you know, we talk to healthcare professionals that, that put on these in, incredible brave faces and they go to work every day and, and, and many of them, like you, uh, will advocate on social media. They'll come on shows like this and, and talk about it. And, and I would imagine that, that for many, every single day, uh, I don't know if I want to say it's a struggle because it, it, it may imply weakness. I, I, mean, I mean, nothing of the sort. Uh, but, but how are you managing what I would imagine is an exhausting day after an exhausting day? Hey, Ryan, I work in inner city hospital in Edmonton. Uh, the frontline staff, we're tough. We can handle a lot of things. But I have to say, we're getting a little tired now. It's been 18 months of this. And I have been pretty silent uh, publicly. Uh, you know, behind the scenes, I've been clanging the bells for a few months now. But uh, publicly, until they were rallying outside our hospital, um, I said, you know what, enough is enough. It's time to say something. And uh, Alberta, we all need to get on the same page. We're all in this together. And if we can just be a little kinder and nicer to one another and a bit more understanding, whether you're vaxxed or unvaxxed, it's going to require everybody's cooperation to get through this together. And, uh, you know, a thousand beds, more than a thousand people admitted to hospital. That's two 500 bed hospitals that have been taken out of service. It's like taking the Royal Alec out of service and the Foothills out of service. If these hospitals serve, Every community, whether you're in Two Hills or Rimby or, you know, uh, Central Alberta or Northern Alberta. I was, when we were talking to uh, Sarah Hoyles and myself, the producer of this show, and one of the things I said, you know, you know, we look ahead and who do we want to book on the show and what subjects do we want to make sure we cover as, as, as deeply as possible. And I said, you know, Dr. Raj Sherman's really ramped up his social media activity recently. Like you're, you'd been, relatively speaking, pretty quiet on Twitter. And, and recently it's just been blast after blast. And I, it's great. I mean, it's informing the public. It's giving us a lot to think about. I was going to ask you, and you may have just answered it, but what the impetus was for that, what the, what the tipping point Malcolm Gladwell might say, well, what was it? Was it, was it the, the rallies outside the hospital that prompted you to start speaking out? Or has it been more than that? Ryan, firstly, it was the rallies. Um, you know, we're in a free society. I encourage people to exercise their freedom of speech at the legislature, just not in front of a hospital um, where sick patients and ambulances and staff are going in and out. But recently it's uh, well, my daughter, she's a family doctor and she works on a COVID ward. And she said, dad, you got to say something. The stuff I'm seeing, 
It's unbelievable. It's beyond what we're seeing in emergency. We're seeing a lot of sick people, but what's happening in the hospitals and the COVID wards? Um, that's why I'm speaking up because my kid uh, said, "Dad, you got to step out. You've been pretty silent publicly, and here we are." You, uh, you, you, I don't know if you. I mean, if you ever, you, you can take the Raj Sherman out of politics, but can you take the politics uh, out of Raj Sherman? I don't know. Uh, here's a tweet that you pushed out uh, just the other day, in particular, talking about uh, mandatory vaccinations, and you pointed out that you know, twenty five thousand public servants must show proof of vaccines, a negative swab, or take an unpaid leave of absence but alberta mlas don't you point out that 100,000 alberta health services healthcare workers must show proof of vaccines by october 16th that's in less than two weeks uh, to work what do you make of the state of the alberta legislature right now what do you what do you make of the governance that albertans are receiving what would you be saying uh in question period if legislature was in session and, and you were in there ryan you know it's interesting I called a whole bunch of my former elected colleagues on the conservative side. And uh, we're all quite concerned as to what's happening in in the legislature right now. You know, um, there was a time when we could actually agree or respectfully disagree. And um, the discourse right now is very concerning. At the end of the day, right now, we have a massive public uh, safety crisis here. And uh, we have a number of MLAs who are in denial that this is a problem and they're impairing. In fact, they're impairing uh, uh, the premier's ability to do his job, what his duties are, which is to protect the public. These are people within his own party. And, uh, right, I was with the conservatives as well for three years. As, yeah. as you remember, I was a junior minister of health. So I'm quite apolitical. And I think what we need to do is not focus on what we disagree on, but was focus what we do agree on. You know, I think, yeah, I think of uh, yourself. I mean, Gene Swazdesky would be another example of, of you know, and, and prominent Alberta politicians, elected officials that had uh, worked for a serf for, for more than one party. And there just seemed to be a bit of a different vibe. It seems, I don't know, to me, it seems a little more tribal right now. It seems like there's a bit more of a divide. And I'll acknowledge that we're in the midst of it right now. Everything always seems, I don't know, maybe a little bit more intense or a little bit more visceral as it's happening but but do you sense a real change of tone when it comes to the political landscape now as, as opposed to what it looked like maybe 10 years ago or so when you were there absolutely right way back when as you know i was with the conservatives when i called when there was a state of emergency in the healthcare system and i was the junior minister of health and i spoke up and i had to say our government at that time was a threat to the public safety and now uh you know, everyone's gone silent in the government. They're all hiding and no one's saying anything. And uh, Premier Kenny's caucus is divided into two. And he's being pulled by those who refuse to get vaccinated, acknowledge that they're vaccinated. In fact, I think they've been severely misinformed. We have two pandemics here. One is COVID-19. The other pandemic is a pandemic of misinformation, which is equally as dangerous because... There's a lot of people peddling snake oil out there, and we got elected people buying into that. And they're sitting in in Premier Kenny's caucus and government making decisions. So how do Dangerous you decisions. how do you combat that, Doctor? I mean, what what would be your solution if you were leader of the party, if you were the premier? You know what? I think we gotta I, what I would do, we always had a when I was at the lips, we said, Hey, 
Let's have open public votes. Let's be honest. Let's have a record of where we all stand. But at the end of the day, let's focus on facts and evidence. The physicians of Alberta at the AMA, the CMA, you know, every expert in healthcare right now is saying, we need to take a little time out. Society in Alberta, we have more COVID cases than Quebec, Ontario, and British Columbia combined. Our hospitalizations are way past wave two and wave three lockdowns. Our ICU cases are double what they were during the wave two, wave three lockdowns. Ryan, picture this. In the end of the election, Premier Kenny called a state of emergency in Alberta that might have influenced the outcome of federal election. And then they called in the military, the Red Cross. When that happens, it's a disaster. It's time for everyone in society right now to take a one or two week time out. We have to reduce the spread of COVID-19 because it's, uh, it, it's just causing a state of continued crisis in the healthcare system. So to be clear, you're talking about the, the idea of a, a circuit breaker or a, a, a fire break, as they're calling it, regardless of someone's vaccination status? Absolutely. You know, vaccines are safe. They've been proven safe, and there's a lot of misinformation about that. The majority of people hospitalized uh, have had no vaccine or only one dose. 90% of people in ICU uh, are unvaccinated or have one vaccine. 80, 85% of people in the hospital. 80% of Albertans are vaccinated. Now, this is a very serious infection. It's way different than the flu. Uh, my daughter tells me on, on the COVID word that patients are younger, they're sicker, they get sicker faster, and they stay sicker for longer. So we, so we need to take a bit of a break to reduce the spread. We have 20,000 active cases right now. If you have 20,000 active cases that are tested positive, 5% are in hospital. So if you have 100 people that are infected who, who think herd immunity is going to solve this by catching the virus, take a look around you. Five of you are going to be suffocating in hospital and oxygen. And out of those, 25% are going to be meters from death, meters from meeting God on a ventilator. And if you survive, your lungs are going to be damaged. Your heart's going to be damaged. We're going to have thousands and thousands of people with long-haul long COVID and chronic disease from COVID. So it's not just the deaths. Deaths are tragic. It's actually the ones who survive from long COVID and severe COVID. We're going to have to deal with this for years to come. It's, uh, I think that, you know, something, ha you know, when, when a celebrity or a, a prominent athlete for example encounters something uh including a health challenge more and more people talk about it and 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 it's been uh, announced it's been revealed that uh, a forward for the edmonton oilers uh josh archibald is uh out indefinitely with myocarditis and you can explain to us doc if you would how serious that is but sidelined indefinitely with myocarditis a heart condition related to uh, a summertime bout of COVID-19 of course he's unvaccinated and that'll have implications on his available availability to the team this year but one of the reasons why I think it's very significant is that Josh Archibald is neither 85 years old nor out of shape uh, we've heard a lot of talk about comorbidities and vulnerabilities um, how significant is that story do you think uh, when it comes to a red flag uh, for members of the general public including those that would be cynical around the long-term impacts of COVID-19. 
Ryan, my my heart goes out to this young man. And, you know, I know there's a lot of heat out there on uh, people who are unvaxxed. I'd ask every Alberta, please be patient with the folks that are sick from COVID that are unvaxxed. They, they are victims of misinformation. And uh, people think they're invulnerable until they get really sick. What's tragic for us in the front lines is you see the looks on these poor fa- folks' faces. They're sick and they're suffocating. And then to say, can I get the vaccine? And at that time, we can't give it to them. They have to wait till they recover. So um, to those who think that you're immune from this, um, if it's not you, you know what? It's going to be your favorite uncle. It's going to be your grandparent. It's going to be someone you love in your family. Somebody in your family you don't know that has cancer that hasn't been diagnosed. You're going to hurt them. In fact, you might even kill them. How do you... How do you get to that point where, and I recognize that, you know, you're, you're being logical and gracious and professional and all the things that we would expect from you, doc. And, 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 and you plead with people to be patient uh, with the unvaccinated or the vaccine hesitant, uh, maybe even the, the so-called anti-vaxxers. I know that a lot of people are getting to, to their wits end there. And it's, I think, prompted by news that, you know, uh, triage decisions now mean that some people will be denied access to the ICU uh, based on, you know, their viability, as horrific as it sounds to say that kids are being turned away from children's hospitals because those beds are being used for expanded ICU surgeries are being postponed, including brain surgeries, cancer surgeries. And I think for a lot of people, it was hypothetical, right? The, you know, it, it was like the more people we get vaccinated, the sooner we can open up. And it was like, okay, yeah, let's all, you know. And then now it's like my uncle's surgery is being postponed and he'll remain on oxy because of the pain in his hip because he can't have his hip replaced because so many unvaccinated people are in the ICUs and public opinion is starting to turn. Uh, I see it every single day. I know you see it too. So what is, when you say be patient, like, what does that look like being put into practice? How do you confront misinformation? How do you approach this? Well, Ryan, when I say be patient, I don't mean sit there and be silent about it. I asked everybody on the weekend, call 10 of your friends. And if they're not bad, two of them will be unvaccinated. You know, do whatever you got to do to beg and plead and ask them to get vaccinated. And as soon as you get vaccinated, you still got to protect yourself. Breakthrough infections are happening. Vaccines take a few weeks to kick in. So, so I'm asking them to pick up the phone and talk to their neighbors. We, I have friends that are firing friends. And Ryan, if we fall apart as a society, you know, it becomes us against them. we got to stay in this together. So, so I'm not just saying none of this fluffy be kind to one another. I'm saying, yes, be kind and understanding, but also let's push each other to be better. And this is why I believe we all need, you know, even if you're vaccinated, even if you're doubly vaccinated, you've got to wear your mask in public. I would say avoid crowds. You know, the Edmonton Oilers and Calgary Flames won't like what I'm going to say. I would not be going to a hockey game in the next couple of weeks until the spread has come down. There are 20,000 who have tested positive for COVID right now. That means there's probably a whole bunch who haven't tested. There's a ton of viral load out there. And breakthrough infections are happening, even to the doubly vaccinated, who are really high risk. They're hospitalized as well. So avoid crowds, wear your mask. You know what? Do whatever you got to do to talk to your best friend and neighbor and cousin who doesn't believe in vaccination. Tell them that they are victims of misinformation. And you know what, Ryan? 
Some of that is from a bunch of doctors. How are you, man? I, there, there have been a couple incidents, isolated incidents I've seen of, of physicians. Uh, I mean, I just don't even know. I don't even know how to ask you the question. I mean, there's physicians that are like not, I won't say speaking out against vaccines, but certainly fueling vaccine hesitancy. And I know that some have been maybe in their words might describe themselves as having been sanctioned. What do you think is the appropriate, you know, the appropriate response? I, th- I think of the story of, you know, those those rodeos that were happening in the summer feels like a lifetime ago, but it's not. It's just a couple of months ago, including, uh, you know, reports of several nurses, including an ICU nurse that was at the rodeo. Uh, I mean, h- how is that being managed within the healthcare system to, to use a sports metaphor, what's that doing to the dynamic in the room? Well, Ryan, there's a saying, your freedom of speech ends at the tip of my nose. We have one of the deadliest viruses in human history in the last hundred years in our generation. You know, I say it's like spraying a bunch of bullets into a crowd. Somebody's going to get hit. Somebody's going to die and somebody's going to get severely injured. So I think uh, the handful, the very small minority of handful of physicians, the vast majority of overwhelming majority of physicians are taking this seriously and are saying, get vaccinated and protect yourself. To those folks, I just say, you know what? You're hurting your fellow citizens. The very advice that you're giving may potentially be lethal to the people who listen to it, if not them, then their family and friends. You need to stop. Doc, let me. Uh, we're going to let you get back to work. Obviously, uh, you're 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 more needed there than here. Although I will acknowledge, thousands of people are going to hear what you have to say here today, and I'm grateful for your perspective. One political question: A lot of people are talking about Alberta's landscape right now is sort of a two party system, right? It's it's going to be. You know, Rachel versus whomever's leading the United Conservatives the next time that Albertans go to the polls. Uh, you have a lot of experience with the Alberta Liberal Party. Uh, Barry Morishita, former Brooks mayor, is is now leading the Alberta Party. Uh, and, and you've got a number of other parties as well, uh, not to be ignored. Uh, what's your take, uh, first of all, on uh, what the landscape will look like, uh, you know, by 2023, next time that Albertans are scheduled to vote? And in particular, what do you think the future of the Alberta Liberal Party looks like? Well, Ryan, I'm not involved with any political party at this moment in time. Uh, But what I will say, there's a big gaping hole in the center of Alberta politics. I I believe in strong social policy of uh, former Premier Rachel Notley. You know what? I'm also a fiscal... Uh, believe in fiscal responsibility and supporting the economy. Right now, we have gone too far. There's not much representation in the middle, especially in the current government. Even when I was with the PCs, we had a lot of, you know, Ron Leipert and Ted Morton would go at it, <laughs> you know, at caucus. We had a lot of good discussions. In fact, Premier Stelmack didn't intervene. Uh, we had fruitful discussions that I wish the public could could actually see. But I think there's going to be a next uh, election. Uh, Premier Kelly is going to have to pay attention to the center and center right. There are many who are sensible conservatives who believe in social responsibility, who are not happy 
with the current government. And uh, I would urge all of them um, to have a look because we need someone to vote for next election other than, you know, the current government. If they carry on with their policies as it is. You can follow our guest on Twitter at Raj Sherman, uh, ER physician. Uh, doctor, it's been great to connect with you again. It's nice to see your face. I look forward to maybe seeing you in person sometime down the line. Thank you for your uh, continued service to Albertans on the healthcare front. We greatly appreciate it. Ryan, thank you. And uh, just one last message to Albertans. If you're not vaccinated, we're begging you. Please get your vaccine. And everyone, wear a mask. Avoid large crowds. Don't go to a busy bo- busy nightclub. Don't go to busy hockey games till we get the spread down. We got to decrease this 20,000 case plateau we're at. We got to come down to a lower plateau. And lastly, Premier Kenny and the UCP caucus, especially those members of the UCP caucus who are pulling the Premier to the right, you got to shut it down for a couple of weeks to save the healthcare system, your constituents, and citizens dearly depend on. The lack of doing this in the last month, to those UCP MLAs, you have been a threat to the public safety and the citizens of the province that you are representing. We're asking you, please do the right thing. Thank you. There it is from the front line, Dr. Raj Sherman. Thanks, Doc. So a two-week circuit breaker or a fire break, it's the same thing, right? People used to, people were saying circuit breaker like six months ago. Now they're saying a fire break. It's, it's the same thing. They just want to basically interrupt, uh, you know, kind of put a bit of a, of, of, of a speed bump in the way. And so we can kind of get this under control. Not, not a, a massive lockdown for three months, uh, but a couple of week period. Uh, Dr. Raj is far from alone in suggesting that one, Sarah. It, it's a lockdown. I just I love this game that we're all playing around not calling them passports, their exemption bloody blahs yeah. and fire break. Like I understand that we're 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 having a battle of words and a batter, battle of rhetoric and a battle of misinformation and disinformation. So trying to take that loaded word of lockdown out of the equation and talking fire break, whatever the case may be, it's about how how long does it take the the virus to transfer and to, you know, percolate? Uh, it's two weeks. So if we can get that two week window and shut it down and keep people from uh, being in contact with one another, we're in good shape. So call it whatever you want. Yeah, everybody, everybody's got their sources. Every, everybody's got, you know, I, I, you know, I know somebody that works here or my cousin's friend is the deputy minister for this or I heard somebody rumbling about this and. You know, there have been rumors flying about plans for a lockdown after Thanksgiving. You know, no politician wants to be the one that cancels family gatherings for Thanksgiving. You sit there and you wonder what's at what cost, though. Right. I know a lot of people are going to worry about what the implications might be of people gathering for Thanksgiving and what it might look like two weeks after that. Uh, You know, I don't have any credible information to suggest that this is anything that you should tell your friends about or tweet but i have to imagine that if the government's considering anything this government in alberta i'm talking about you you'd be looking at following thanksgiving and and potentially two or three weeks after that so we'll see we'll see and of course we'll be here uh you know bringing in expert guests to analyze uh, whatever it is that's going to impact your life you can tell us uh, you can put stuff on our radar by sending us an email by hitting us up on twitter our official account at Real Talk RJ. 
Our friends at uh, Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep want to remind you that, yeah, they've got new inventory coming in. They've got better selection, the best selection in the province when it comes to Ram trucks, better than anybody else, even though it's been a hell of an ordeal trying to get your hands on a new Ram these days. A shortage of vehicles due to a lot of different factors. The microchip availability is what they say is the big reason, but that's been the case across, uh, quite frankly, across North America. It's why it's an even bigger deal that at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, they've got a great selection of pre-owned vehicles, including, I'm looking right now at SherwoodDodge.com, 29 pre-owned Rams in stock, 12 pre-owned Jeeps in stock, plus a number of other vehicles that come with guarantees. You won't find those on Kijiji. You want to go to a dealership you can trust. You can find our friends at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. The following paid advertisement does not necessarily represent the views of Ryan Jesperson, Real Talk, or Relay Communications Group Incorporated. It's time for a fresh perspective. Edmonton deserves a leader who will work for you and with you. Someone who understands the strengths of our community to do things better and faster. Cheryl Watson has built her career on results, not promises. On October 18th, vote Watson for mayor and together, let's build a city that works. This ad is paid for by the Watson for Mayor campaign. Our friends at Westworld Computers want to remind you that, yeah, they have the new iPhone 13 and the iPhone 13 Pro and the iPhone 13 Pro Max. I keep dropping that hint around the house. It's never too early to start making your list for Santa. Never too early. And the iPhone 13 Pro Max is on that. They've got the iPad Mini, the sixth generation there as well. But for those of you that maybe aren't in the market for new, you want to make sure that you keep your current gear running as best it can for as long as it can. Westworld Computers, your Apple experts, are an Apple Apple authorized service provider. Their Apple trained technicians use genuine Apple parts, so you can trust them with all your Apple devices. Family owned for more than 40 years. You'll find them online at westworld.ca. Well, I wasn't sure we would get to this story. It's it's not the biggest story making news, but it was a bit of a cringeworthy one. Sarah Hoyles out of the Western Hockey League. You know, my very first gig in media was my practicum way back in the day. The you know, I was running the bureau for CTV Saskatoon in Prince Albert. And my very first television story that ever aired, ever aired on TSN. And it was a playoff precursor for the Prince Albert Raiders. Hmm. Of course, everybody knows former Oiler Leon Dreisaitl played there. All-time American great Mike Medano played there. Uh, Many other players that have gone on uh, to play in the National Hockey League. and And they played, especially those older players through the 1980s, with a certain sweater. Uh, a certain logo and the Prince Albert Raiders just a few days ago tweeting that their third jerseys, they were throwing it back for their thirds. Go Raiders go, says the hashtag. Now, for those of you listening to the podcast, I'll do my best to describe the logo to you. For those of you watching on YouTube, you can see it clearly. It's well, how do you describe it? I mean, can oh. I cut to the chase? And it looks- it's really unf- like the fact that you have to describe it. It's. Can I say it's a jihadist? It's what it looks like. I mean, is that fair to say? It's a I mean, caricature. It's a caricature of a jihadist. Essentially, it's a, it's it's an Arab-looking man with with a big dagger 
Right, Sam, can you put it up again so I can do my best to describe it? I'm trying to be politically correct and careful here, but I mean, let's cut to the chase. That's what it looks like. It looks like a guy from the Middle East holding the big, what do you call that? Like not a it's saber? Not a, is, is it like a saber? It's probably not. It's like the curved. You know what I mean? And uh, and he's wearing skates and a hockey stick. And they released a, a couple of photos of their players modeling this jersey. I, I kind of felt for these guys. Uh, you know, th- there's this fellow with a big smile on his face. And then there's Landon Kosier. Uh, a Saskatchewan boy who's got kind of a, I can't, I don't know how to read what sort of facial expression that is. He's either, that's his tough like face off face or uh-huh. he's just like, why do I have to wear this? Uh, he was almost memed over the weekend. People posting his photos and saying my face when someone decides to bring back racist characters on hockey sweaters in the year 2021. It did not play well over the weekend. You don't say. When the Prince Albert Raiders released this one and i know a lot of people especially fans of the raiders were saying Uh. if you're triggered by this you know you you give your head a shake and when i see this sweater it just reminds me of mike medano it doesn't make me think of anything racist uh but it blew up pretty big it got all the wrong talk i'm talking to my pal uh as a matter of fact a hockey broadcaster yesterday and i said what do you think's happening with this and he goes they have to cancel the plans And uh, you have an update for us on this story. Yeah, we sure do. Yeah, they have said they will pull the, quote, insensitive and offensive third jersey. And that's a day after it was unveiled. So at least they're acknowledging that it's insensitive and offensive. (laughs) What do you make of Like, here's what I think about this is a decision like this goes past about 15 sets of eyes before it's decided on, let alone tweeted. Is there any way in your world that this is something that should have made it past 15 sets of eyes? No, <laughs> I, I actually like I looked at the I, I mean, I'm not actually somebody who's well versed in what the Prince Albert Raiders logo looked like. And I took one look at it and I'm just like, didn't Cleveland ditch a logo for their baseball team that looks kind of like this a few years looks ago? Very like, similar. To yeah, that. like similar art style. You know what I mean? It's just like there's no good way to look at this. Yeah. Sharon says, I can't believe that nobody stopped that before they were made. Alicia wonders how I'm going to read this. I'm going to do I want to do Alicia's comment justice because there's periods throughout. How many layers did this go through? (laughs) So I think that that's there you go. Um, Mana, Dr. Mana Sally is watching. It's so great to see her here. And, And she says, everyone who hasn't, please read the book Orientalism. Uh, by Edward said or Edward Said uh, says this character is extremely orientalist, which is interesting. I've not read that. Uh, Lisa says, I can't believe that they pulled those jerseys out, you know, from the mothball says I worked at the rink uh, when I was in high school. I loved the hockey, but the but the logo, I mean, the fact that that logo got so far in 2021 speaks volumes about the attitudes there. Which is an interesting take. I mean, I don't want to paint the entire community of Prince Albert with one brush, but I will say the fact that that organization saw no problem, I mean, especially now. Mm-hmm. It's not even it's not 2019 or 2018 or 2015 or 2010. Right. Like right now where these things are so supercharged, I just can't even believe that it made its way through. But hey, moot point, I guess they've canceled the jerseys. I'm not surprised one bit. You wonder if there will be a bit of a run on the ones that did get out there. Oh, all of a sudden they're worth five grand, right? The old Mike Medano with the uh, with the logo. I I just the thing that gets me is, you know, 
that it's they had there had to be public outrage there had to be you know a, a twitter storm around it for there to be uh, oh mate maybe we shouldn't have done this. Yeah. I mean, it just speaks to who is behind the leadership and making the decisions within that hockey club. Um, I, I, my guess would be that there's not a lot of diversity in that organization. Yeah. Or, or, or maybe in hockey in general. I think it's a fair comment. Uh, you know, I'm a huge hockey fan. I love, I live and breathe hockey. Um, it is a sport that has challenges around diversity. And we've seen some amazing initiatives that are great. You know, the right to play initiatives, Pride Tape out of Edmonton, by the way, which has been an amazing initiative, um, providing a more inclusive or welcoming atmosphere for LGBTQ to us plus athletes. Uh, we've seen prominent uh, black hockey players step up in particular during the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, you know, I, I think of, you know, several, including Edmonton Oilers that that step forward and and we're willing to talk to the media about that. I always wonder how it feels, though, as well. You know, being a person of color, whether you're in entertainment or athletics or whatever, and, and there's a movement happening, everybody goes to you, right? You're talking about the Oilers. You go, well, I want to talk to Darnell Nurse, right? Or you're talking, you know, the hockey. We've got to go, got to go to Matt Dumba, or we got to go find a black athlete to talk about this as if they haven't had that as a reality their entire lives, Right. You are the de facto spokesperson or advocate for that type of movement, you know, to provide some context for people about what it's been like when really maybe for some of these guys, some of these athletes and, and, and men and women in a number of different sports. And, and for that matter, across the entertainment spectrum, you know, if you're if you're an Asian actor, you know, they often talk about when's the last time I mean, aside from, you know, respectfully, like jackie chan or bruce lee or and i'm sure that maybe there are some but like when's the last time like how often do you see asian leads you know on on, on 200 million dollar hollywood productions why was black panther such a big deal because for the first time in forever there was a black superhero right for the first time in forever and, and that's not even to talk about gender parody everybody was excited about you know 1984 or that wonder woman film which apparently was a bomb i haven't seen it yet but everybody was excited. Finally, there's a great, you know, film featuring a, a female superhero. And it, uh, apparently the film was a bit of a dud, but I digress. Not because of her. The first one was great. Was it? Oh, uh, yeah, it was. It was awesome. I, I haven't it. seen, I've seen a bunch of people kind of like taking steaming piles on the 1984. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I yeah, should watch it. I haven't seen that one yeah. uh, per se, but I would. The thing that I just I, I have to flag is the idea that we the person that is the oppressed party is the one that has to then stand up. Yeah. And it's like, even when Ethan bear had to say, Hey, you know what? These racist attacks that are happening to me around the fine, the, like the Stanley cup, uh, run, not cool. And I was like, I don't want to hear. I mean, I want to hear from Ethan bear, but I don't think it should have to be Ethan bear. I think it should be the white dudes that have the most agency yeah. that are standing up and saying, a hell no yeah uh -huh. not okay like, like it was and that was that was uh friendly fire yeah. right ethan bear is facing these racist attacks from fans or alleged fans of the team he played for not even from opposing fans i mean not that it makes a difference in how it lands but that's friendly fire and you're right you're 100 right i mean we did put in an interview request because we wanted to talk to ethan um, I can't. I still can't believe he got traded. I can't even believe it. I, I'm still sore about that. I, I'm sore that we're not going to see Ethan Bear's 74 on home ice this this uh, season for the Edmonton Oilers. But I digress. You're right. When you face those racist attacks, you, you think you really 
I mean, maybe some people do, but you think the average person really then wants to stand in front of a bunch of cameras and explain what it feels like? Uh, I think it'd be absolutely exhausting. Um, I'm curious for your take uh, in particular. You know, I'd love to hear from from people that, you know, audience members, real talkers uh, to whom this really deeply resonates. You know, what's if you're willing to share, if you'd like to share uh, or if you have a story that you think that we should consider, we want to leave time uh, through every week of episodes, leave time for audience uh, emails, audience interactions. We've got a ton, including some good news coming up. In just a second here, it's a Monday tradition here on the show. First, we wanted to remind you that our question of the week is up right now at RyanJesperson.com. If you go to our homepage, you'll see it right across the top. The question of the week is presented by our friends at Y Station. They're our official research and strategy partners. And every week, about a thousand of you chime in. Hey, Real Talkers, I'd love to see that number bump up to 2,000. But still, a thousand is pretty awesome. Pretty great sound. I mean, I don't want to be greedy. Don't here. get greedy. I'm not trying to get ball. greedy, but I just think the more the merrier. Uh, but it's amazing to hear from about a thousand of you every week. Uh, and and we're getting serious this week, September 30th. That was, of course, the first, the inaugural day for a National Truth and Reconciliation, formally recognized across the country as a moment to commemorate and respect the children who died at residential schools. Of course, those who survived. And the deep impacts that those so-called schools have had on the lives of many indigenous people. This week, we want to hear how you marked the day and your reflections on what you've learned. The question of the week will remain open right up until Sunday. But why wait until then? And then, of course, that's when the team at Y Station gets to work putting that data together. Our Patreon supporters, bless you, will receive the top line report in your email inbox late Sunday, early Monday morning. And of course, we'll review it early next week. Uh, here, no, we won't not next week here on the show because we're off next week. That's right. We're going to take an extended break uh, for Thanksgiving, some family time, and then we'll be back the week after, which is when we'll get into that. We'll keep you updated on what the next few days look like. Uh, before we go today, let me first remind you about the amazing work that our friends at Kubi Energy are doing, uh, helping people make sense of design and then implement solar energy solutions to power your life. Hoyles, can I put you on the spot for that anecdote? Can I put you on the spot oh, geez, for a quick yeah. telling of that story you told me about the other? You don't have to identify anybody, but this one, I loved this one. Well, just I, I was talking with my mom and she had a book club and they were talking about how somebody had a cabin, how somebody had solar and blah, 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 and how it was so great and they were saving money. And then my mom's like, oh, I just, I can't remember the name of the company. The company, it's just I, like, I can't remember. They said some, some name. And I was like, was it, was it Kubi Energy? And she's like, how did you know? <laughs> You're like, well, <laughs> as a matter of fact, they're Western Canada's leader in solar energy and renewable energy solutions. Uh, that that really made me happy to hear. And uh, of course, Kubi lets us know because you know our advertisers care about things like return on investment. And I went golfing earlier this summer with Jake Kubiski, the founder of Kubi Energy, and I said, "How's how's the partnership working out?" He goes, "Dude." He's like, he goes, we track our leads pretty closely. And he said the number of real talkers that have reached out to us has kept them happy. And we're excited to have Kubi remaining on board. You can learn more about what they do at kubienergy.ca. Our first broadcast, our first episode of every week, uh, we endeavor to get you and us started off on a positive foot. Started in the right direction, if you will, with a balanced perspective. So much negative news around us. We're so grateful that Kubi Energy presents Positive Reflections. I love this one from Tim. 
Tim sent me an email. He, he said, you know, Ryan, uh, he sent this to us about a week ago. Earlier this afternoon, I'm sitting at my desk. I, I decided I needed a Timmy's fix. Needed a coffee to get me through the afternoon. So I drove over to the, the one nearest by. And as I pulled into the drive through, I, I spotted a large gathering of bikers in the adjacent parking lot. They're wearing patches. And, and my mind immediately went to wondering which outlaw biker gang it was. I even said to myself, you know, motorcycle enthusiasts wouldn't be in a parking lot at like quarter to two on a Tuesday. They'd be at work, right? He goes, but I was curious. Like, what were they? Were they like one percenters or what was the deal? So I swung around into the parking lot and and did a drive by. And as one of them turned around, I read the patch on his vest. Bullying ends. And as soon as I got back to my office, I Googled it. And it turns out they are a motorcycle club. Far from outlaws, though. They volunteer their time. They'll be contacted by concerned parents, parents whose kids are being bullied and struggling with life. And this group of heartwarming men and women will show up in full biker regalia to surprise the kids at school. They'll talk to them. They'll let them ask questions. And I would imagine send a pretty clear message to the bullies, too. He says, so here's the real talk. It was pretty easy for me to be judgmental. If I had turned left, and left that parking lot, I would have left assuming that I was right. They were outlaws, probably criminals. But instead, I was curious. I hung a right, and I let my curiosity play out. And when I realized I'd been so quick to judge them on how they looked, I'll be honest, I was pretty disappointed in myself. He says, you know, in a time of extreme division, it's easy to be negative, but oftentimes there's more to a situation than meets the eye. So with that in mind, I will leave you with this quote from Walt Whitman. And he says, yeah, I heard it on Ted Lasso. Be curious, not judgmental. Tim says, I know I feel better for it. One love to all the real talkers out there. That from Tim. Tim, I love it. Thanks so much for that. And this one from Kim, who had us all doubled over in laughter. Kim reached out to us, sent us this tweet. She said, uh, meow, dear. Uh, she said, take a look at these election signs. She says, Jespo, this is my positive reflection. I have, uh, she says, I, 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 I hate uh, cats, says Kim. So this is my meow culpa uh, to all the cat-loving Real Talk RJ fans. These are election signs featuring cats leading up to the most recent federal election these are hilarious you've got this one here featuring gustav running for the liberal party and what about this one this one you had uh, my boy running for the conservatives and sheldon that feline running for the new democrats this is absolutely hilarious stuff what about chat quebecois moose the elected hopeful for the bq kim whether you love cats or maybe don't love them quite as much. I thought that that was a perfect selection for positive reaction. Hey, you know that positive reflections is better with a little animal content every once in a while, my friends. You can send us your emails, your tweets. Make sure you label them as positive reflections. And make sure you tune in the first episode of Real Talk every week to see if your positive reflection is featured. Presented by Kubi Energy. Coming up tomorrow, we'll talk to Canadian uh, musician Cadence Weapon, the winner of the Polaris Music Prize and a good friend of mine. I'm looking forward to that. Plus, more to come this week. You will not want to miss Friday's show, the top five polling candidates in Calgary's mayor's race and four of the top five in Edmonton. 
We invited all five. Will join us for 10 minute one on one interviews with me as we get closer to election day. That's Monday the 18th. It's a one episode election extravaganza. We're very much looking forward to it. Have a great Monday, friends. Thanks for joining us today. Our thanks again to Dr. Wing Lee, Dr. Raj Sherman, and the great Peter Mansbridge. We'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com. <laughs>